0: This is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs.
1: For deals you can use, click on Dobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
0: Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We've got Bradford Bruns back in the studio. Bradford just heads up. I think you might have a YouTube video going on in the background as well. It is BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We are broadcasting live at the E and B Granite Studios at the Centene Community Ice Center, where the blues are expected to have morning skate. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, I think that whenever we see The lines from this morning, Uh, I'm going to guess they go through a blender a bit because last night was not good. That was the downside of this new style of play that the Blues are playing. They end up losing that one against the Coyotes, who just seem to have the Blues number over the last few years. This goes all the way back to the COVID season where they were just... They somehow had the Blues number, despite the fact that at that point, they were a horrendous hockey program. Now they're a little better. Should be towards the middle of the Western Conference. But last night, a 6-2 to loser, you heard that audio right here on 101 ESPN. It looked off from the very beginning. Now, I think the second period is where things really got off to the wrong foot. But, Craig Barubi, what did you see from your team? Where did these issues start? Yeah,
2: self-inflicted. I mean, we just got... A puck taken off us way too easily. Uh, I didn't think that we were heavy enough on pucks. We didn't compete hard enough on pucks. Um, And then, you know, we didn't execute any plays. Like I said, they were, plays were there. We didn't make any plays. The passes wasn't, passing was awful. And um, again, they outskated us.
0: So that was Craig Berube after the game last night on the self inflicted wounds. That's kind of how I felt, T Bone. A lot of this was the Blues beating themselves as much as it was Arizona beating the Blues and that's why I think so many people come into today feeling as bad as you do because this felt like last year man it felt like watching the same team over again that ended up with a top 10 draft pick now again just as I didn't overreact to the first two games of the season that went well for the Blues in terms of the overall results I don't want to overreact to what we saw last night in a negative way but all of my hesitation to buy in to the first two games of the season is because it, it, it felt like a game like last night was coming where, hey, your goalie doesn't make all of the big saves that Bennington had been making previously. Hey, some of those pucks that end up kind of bouncing your direction, they're going to go the other direction. And when that happens with this defensive style they're playing, it could lead to some breakaways going in the other direction. We saw a decent amount of that last night. Hey, if you're going to be hemmed into your own zone as much as you are with this style of defense, it could end up taking away a little bit from that potent offense that we've seen. That's been the case now in three consecutive games. T-Bone, what would you take away from last night's loss in what was uh, just an ugly game to watch from start to finish?
3: Yeah, it was an ugly game to watch. And, and you know, it never felt like they were in it because they, they it felt like being there at the arena, they never had the puck. And, and that was the biggest thing for me is, yes, they were turning the puck over, but it felt like when they would get hemmed into that zone, when they did exit, they'd have to just dump and chase. And not really the chase part, just dump it in so they could get the line change. They never had consistent zone time offensively, and that is something that has been going for three games in a row, and that that is a concern, because as you get deeper into the year, that is a trend that is continuing. Defensively, I, 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 I felt like it was kind of the same. It just felt they were more hemmed in. They couldn't get out of the zone as much last night, and part of that was because of turnovers. It, it was just a ugly game all around for the St. Louis Blues. They just could not generate anything offensively. Why? Because they're hemmed in their own zone, and they feel it felt like they were just in like a shell the whole game, just trying to block shots. And it felt like after I'd say that first period, first first goal allowed, it was OK, we just got to try and survive, find our way to get one goal and like force ourselves into overtime again.
0: I didn't feel like last night, if I'm just being totally candid, was all that different than the previous three uh, two games Like at five on five. I think the Blues played pretty similarly. The difference was the penalty kill. The difference was in the first two games, you allowed one goal on the PK. And in this one, you allowed three. (laughs) I, I think this is pretty simple. Sometimes when the power play is going to be as bad as it has been for the Blues all year long. And the five on five offense is as bad as it has been so far for the Blues through three games. If your PK lets up and we've said it all along, your biggest, most important piece of the PK is your goalie. I think that Jordan Bennington has been huge in that regard in the first two games of the season. In this one, you gave up all the goals in that spot, and that's where the change was. You ended up, instead of losing this game like 3-2, to which would have been the case if you didn't allow a goal on the PK, you lose it 6-2, to and it feels like it completely got away from you. That's really where I saw the biggest difference. It almost felt like last night we've watched this ground ball pitcher that's had the balls get through for the first two games of the season, They've been going straight at your defenders. Like you've just had your defense put in the exact right spot. The infield has been able to make the plays that were necessary. And then last night, those ground balls that previously were able to be converted into outs. Now they're getting through. That's something you expect. You have to anticipate that. Miles Michaelis is not always going to have the ground balls that he gets go straight to the defenders because he relies less on strikeouts than other pitchers. He's going to rely a little bit more on luck for the blues. They are reliant almost exclusively right now on being able to shut down opposing teams offense. That's both at that five on five and on the penalty kill because they are not generating any consistent offense whatsoever themselves. When you play this style, if things go wrong for you at all, you have zero margin for error because now you're playing on your heels. And now that defensive style, I know you mentioned this after seeing it in person last night, instead of being able to really pack the house and get in by the, by the net, now you're starting to get a little more aggressive. And now some of those defensive issues that we saw last year start to creep back in, and now it ends up getting away from you even more than it did previously. This is just a style that they're playing right now that does not lead itself to playing the way that I think will generate enough offense for them to consistently get these wins.
3: I agree with that because watching it in person last night, they, they can't play from behind. And Now, one goal you can come from behind, but when you fall behind two, 2 nothing, 3-1, stuff like that. That's when that zone really started to see. And you could see it last night. That zone went from being really tight, compact, we're not going to allow any slot shots. I think you saw that kind of in the first period. Defensively, it seemed pretty good. They were hemmed in their zone a lot, but the defense was strong. Once they fell behind by two, that's when that zone really started to open up, play more aggressive, and it's probably what you want to see because you are trailing in that game, but that's when you see the defensive issues from last year. They just can't play from behind, but the problem is is I don't know how they get ahead because they don't have an offensive identity. They are kind of stuck without an offensive identity, and defensively the identity is we're just going to play like slugfest hockey essentially. I I feel like I'm watching a a triple option football team.
0: It's the Tennessee Titans of yesteryear where it's like, hey – if we get up early, we're going to play the smash mouth style. We're going to run it down your throat with Derrick Henry, and then we're just going to play great defense because Mike Frabel's in charge. If this goes poorly, though, we have no chance of coming back in a yeah. game. If we get down 24 to 10, it's over. Like, we're, we're done. We're, we'll go ahead and start working towards next week. We'll see what it looks like in the following week. But that's kind of what this Blues team feels like right now. Now, to be fair, Tennessee had a lot of success playing that way. And the Blues could end up having a lot of success this year playing this specific style. Just doesn't really allow for some of that, um, the ability to come back into games and the margin for error being any higher than what it was previously. That's
3: what I was going to say. There is no margin for error when no. you're playing this kind of style. You you have to be locked down defensively and you're going to have to win games one nothing, 2-1. Like that, That's what you're going to have to do. I mean, they're averaging a goal and a half per game right now. Is that sustainable to win? Probably not. Now, I do think the offense at some point will look a little bit better, and I think that all centers around probably the power play where they're going to have to make up that difference from this style. But, yeah, it, it's a it's a style where there's little wiggle room to try and get past, and I, I don't know how they're going to generate offense with this style.
0: You saw what it looked like on the ice, ice last night. That is the eye test. Now, if you want to see, hey, how does that match up with the numbers with what we've seen so far this year, here are some of their rankings at five on five so far this season. Corsi rating, which basically measures how often do you have the puck? It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the easiest way to break it down. They're the fourth worst in the NHL right now. Only San Jose, Anaheim and Colorado have been worse in that regard. If you're looking at what is the percentage of shots that are in your favor? So when you're on the ice, are you 20 to 10, out shooting your opponent, that'd be 66%, whatever, right? When you're on the ice at five on five, what percentage of the shots are in your favor? They're third worst in the NHL. They're at 40% so far this year. Only San Jose and Washington have been worse. San Jose, a consistent theme in this regard. Scoring chances. What percentage of the scoring chances at five on five are in favor of the Blues? Fourth worst so far this year. San Jose, Colorado, surprisingly enough, and Vancouver are the three teams that have been worse so far this year. On the power play, by the way, only Dallas, Washington, and Anaheim, along with the Blues, have scored zero power play goals on the season. Of those teams, only Washington and St. Louis have played three games so far this year. It's been abysmal offensively. This is a team that has to get things going if they're going to have any amount of belief that they can be a legitimate contender in 2024. We all knew the defense was going to be a question mark coming into this season. I think some were more skeptical of the, of the offense than us. Certainly the numbers nerds were more skeptical of the offense than we were. I thought they had enough coming into the season, kind of like I thought the Cardinals had enough pitching. That is not proving to be the case so far. It's three games. Hopefully this thing turns around. But, man, early on, the indicators are not good on the Blues offense.
3: Yeah, I, I thought they were going to have enough in terms of, like, depth of scoring. Like, maybe not 920 goal scores, but did they have seven? Like, I, I thought they would have at least seven guys that could be 20 goal scores. And the thing that they were going to be missing was that, like, superstar 100-point player. They don't have either right now. And, yeah. and the depth of scoring is a major question mark. If you would have told me that the defense was going to play like this through three games – well, two games and then kind of what happened last night. I would have said, yeah, I would sign up for that, assuming that the offense was there. But it almost feels like it's just gone in the opposite direction from the defense was a major problem, Two, all of a sudden it is now the offense can't generate anything and we'll see if they can find a way to kind of break that out. I, I don't know if they can or not.
0: He's Tanner and Alex Ferrario out today. He'll be back in on Monday. Bradford Bronze running the board back in the studio for us. We are broadcasting live out at the E&B Granite Studios at the Centene Community Ice Center where the Blues are taking the ice here momentarily for morning. Skate should have an update on what the lines look like within the next 15 minutes. We will pass that along as we get it here on BK and Ferrario. Coming up in In 15 minutes, we'll talk to Bill Connolly. He's a college football writer for ESPN.com. Want to get his thoughts on a big game for Mizzou tomorrow. They're going up against South Carolina and Missouri's homecoming game. Opportunity for Mizzou to get off to its best start since 2013. So I want to break that down with Bill Connolly. We'll also get his thoughts on the big game in the Big Ten where Penn State will be taking on Ohio State. So we'll get into all of that coming up here in just a little bit. But coming up next, the Diamondbacks had a big decision to make last night. It reminded us of two previous managerial decisions that didn't quite go as well as it ultimately did last night for Arizona. We'll get into it next here on 101 ESPN.
1: We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Kimbrell deals an 0-1. That's into center field. It's down.
0: Be thinking that the uh, Diamondbacks ended up winning last night, based on some of the reaction that we have seen across the Major League ba- Baseball spectrum this morning. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We've got Bradford Bruns running the board for us in the studio today. Alex Ferrario is out. He'll be back in on Monday morning. T-Bone, yesterday, the Diamondbacks end up winning that game two to one. They're kind of back into the series, really. Uh two to one as well. The Phillies are leading going into game number four. Diamondbacks going with a bullpen game today. And yesterday, they got a great start out of Brandon Fott. He ends up giving them five and two thirds innings. He struck out nine. He did not allow a run against that potent Phillies offense prior to yesterday's game, T-Bone. The Phillies' offense basically had the equivalent of what Barry Bonds was doing in 2000. Like, their their slash line as a team was almost identical to Barry Bonds' 2000 slash line as a player over the course of that season. Incredible. So, it, they've been awesome, to say the least. So, Torrey Lavolo, the manager for the Diamondbacks, decides in the sixth inning, after Fott has already received two outs in the inning, it is time to go to the bullpen. Now, the reason why he does this is the same reason why last year we saw the Cardinals do this in the with their decision-making process in the wild card game in game number one. Now, it is a slightly different decision. In this one, he has Brandon Fott go out there for the first two hitters, and then he pulls him instead of seeing Kyle Schwarber for the third time through because he doesn't want Schwarber getting the opportunity to face him the third time through the order. Schwarber was 0 for 2 in that game. But this guy, third time through, dominates opposing starters typically. In that spot, he ends up going to his bullpen. It didn't technically work because he ends up walking Kyle Schwarber. Now they win the game. All's well that ends well. The reason why I wanted to bring this up is because the same process that went into pulling Jose Quintana against the Phillies is the exact same thought process that that went into pulling Fott yesterday against the Phillies as well. Jose Quintana had done his job. He got through five and a third, allowed two hits, three strikeouts, one walk, was at 75 pitches, and they decided to go to the bullpen when they get into the, he had one out at that point in the sixth inning, and they go to the bullpen instead of seeing Jose Quintana face Hoskins for the third time through, they wanted to go to Jordan Hicks in that spot. It worked out for the Cardinals there, it ended up being a problem for them as they got later into the game. T-Bone, this is clearly something that managers believe is the correct decision in these spots. Cardinals last year, now we see it again with Tori Lovolo this year. Do you think they are operating correctly, though? Do you think that they ended up getting that choice correct last night? And did Ollie get it right last year?
3: so i I think they did they had the right thought process last night, even though, like you said, it technically didn't work, but it ended up working out that they win the game because that was a rookie that was pitching in fought so like i I understand those skeptics of well he's got to he you got to go by feel he was pitching well. well, I also know that Schwarber almost hit an absolute shot off of him in his last at bat that he just happened to yank foul, so I think the Diamondbacks did it right last night. I know nobody wants to hear, hear it because he had nine strikeouts, and his stuff looked awesome. But I, I think the thought process was right because I, that dominant of lineup that was slugging like Barry Bonds, the more matchups you can throw at them, the better um, because you do not want him seeing fought for a third time. The Cardinals one, I still kind of go back and forth. I, I think the decision-making was right, but that's a veteran starter that was out there that was pitching well. I would have decided more on the side of because that was a veteran in Quintana, probably stick with him. But I think the thought process was right for managers. I, I, I know people don't like to hear that. They want to go by gut and feel. Well, gut and feel has Bruce Bochy 2-2 now heading into a Game 5 tonight. So I I think the process is right. I think there is a balance between going with that process and deciding, okay, what do we do? I think with a rookie though, that's the right decision from the Diamondbacks because a rookie can make that one mistake at any given time because he's not a polished pitcher just yet.
0: I think it's the right call. And I thought it was the right call last year. It blew up in their face, obviously for a million different reasons. The ninth inning ended up going horribly awry. You couldn't predict what happened against the Cardinals last year. It was I was in person for that game, and as I'm watching the meltdown, and I'm just thinking to myself, is this even real? Like, how how is this happening right now? And it just kept happening over and over and over again. It could have blown up in their face last night. It absolutely could have. And part of why is because... I'm not sure the Diamondbacks have the deepest bullpen in the world. And if there's another piece to this puzzle that needs to be taken into account, it's A, you don't have the deepest bullpen to be able to get you through the next three and a third, and B, what is the trickle-down effect today for them as they're going with a bullpen game against the Phillies. But honestly, if they think that is what gives them the best chance yesterday to win, they should do it. Even if it means today it makes it a little harder, because if you go down 3-0 against that Phillies team, you're done. Yeah. It's game over. This is a must-win situation just as it was in game three for the Astros against the Texas Rangers. You have to win that in that spot or you are basically done and you've got no chance in your series. I think he got it right because he's a rookie, and this is why I brought up the Jose Quintana decision yesterday, or last year instead of the one that I think a lot of people are pointing to, to today, which is the decision that was made a few years ago by the Tampa Bay Rays when they decided to take out Blake Snell. That, to me, was different. Blake Snell is not the same pitcher as Brandon Fott or Jose Quintana. Quintana technically started the first game of the series for the Cardinals last year. Quintana is nobody's definition of a number one starter. Yeah. he should like if, if he was available this offseason, we would be talking about Quintana as the third pitching addition for the Cardinals. That's where he needs to fit into a contending team's rotation. Brandon Fott for most of the season was, no pun intended, an afterthought for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, he's been good in the second half, but by good, I mean he's basically been for them what Zach Thompson has been for you in the second half of this season as a Cardinals team. If Zach Thompson was doing the exact same thing in a playoff game for the Cardinals against that Phillies lineup, Ollie Marmel would have and should have made the exact same decision as what Torrey Lovolo did yesterday.
3: Yeah, I, and I think the part that you said that, and it ties into the Cardinals' off season is you got to have a deep enough bullpen to do this. Because I, I think last year... The Cardinals stretched themselves thin by going to the bullpen after five and a third from Quintana because they really had three arms. And, yes, they were going to try and stretch Helsley for a second inning, but you kind of had to, like – stretch it like it was, uh, what is that stuff called? Slime, essentially. In a last band to, Yeah, to, to get this bullpen to cover four innings, you had to stretch it a little bit, which then puts you behind the eight ball for the next game. And I feel the same way with the Diamondbacks. But to your point, they were in a must-win game. You worry about today before you worry about tomorrow. And that's what they did, and it worked out for them. I think it ties into the Cardinals' offseason, too, because though, yes, you're right, if that was Zach Thompson starting that game and that was the Cardinals in that spot, the right process probably is, we got to get him out after five innings but does the right process equal because we have a good bullpen and not just because, oh, well, the numbers say third time through the order, he's got to come out. Because if you don't have a good bullpen, that's where it can go haywire on you. And that's why you've got to have – almost like the Phillies where you got four or five arms that you trust because then you can cover those four innings rather than saying, Yeah, we got three, but man, we got to stretch somebody another inning." Or we got to have each guy go an inning in a third, and that's where you see bullpens really get too kind of loose, and that's where those bullpens aren't deep enough, and that's when those teams get eliminated.
0: 3143999646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We got a couple of texts that I wanted to respond to here. First from the 618. Guys, do you think Tony La Russa was the start of the trend of pulling pitchers early? Yeah. I do. I think what he did with the Cardinals and how he was able to win those two World Series, especially in 2011, where you're going, for the most part, shorter with your starters, more with your bullpen. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think that team had more innings out of its bullpen than it did the starters. I'll have to check that to make sure if that's 100% accurate, but I believe that was the case for the 11 Cardinals. And when you're doing stuff like that and other teams see it, they're going to start looking more into that. And they're going to say, okay, this might be a winning strategy. And now, as we've seen the numbers that have backed that up, yeah, I think a lot of teams are doing that, not because Tony La Russa did it, but because what Tony La Russa did was smart. He didn't call it an analytical decision. He may have said at the time, yeah, I'm going with my gut. I've seen a lot of baseball. I know when to pull my starter. But the truth is, Those binders that he had over there that he was looking through, what do you think those were full of? It was full of information. What is information? Information is born from analytics. It's just if you ran through this uh, same simulation a thousand times, what is the best possible outcome? What is the most likely outcome for us? doesn't always work. Somebody else from the 314 asked a question that I think is a totally reasonable one. Even if this is something that works People don't like the fact that it might be the right move. The the analytic type of baseball these days sucks to watch. It makes for a less fun, less enjoyable product. I do agree with that. And I'm somebody that likes the numbers, but it's definitely less fun to watch. I would have rather seen Brandon Fott stay in that game to find out, hey, what can you do here? If you've got an opportunity to see a special start from a guy like Fott in that spot, where I would say most of the country that was watching that game wasn't familiar with him prior to this postseason... That is the way that you can make a starting pitcher into a star. So I do think it's less fun to watch as a fan when you've got these kinds of things. But teams aren't in the business of having something that is more fun to watch. They're in the business of winning. And if they think this is something that will help them win, that's what they have to do.
3: Yeah, I mean, look at the Blues defense. Um, I, I, I actually find it more entertaining in the postseason. Now, regular season, I think it's a totally fair argument because it is, okay, this is game 35 and we're already playing the numbers game. Like, sure. come on, I want to see Fott go out there for the sixth inning. But I think in the postseason it's more fun because it's it's chess. You, you got to play chess with the bullpen. Is it time to pull him? Do we have a better matchup? If I go to this guy, are they going to counter with a right-handed batter? I think in the postseason when the stakes are the highest – it is more fun because, it's to me, it is a chess match that you're watching where one little slip-up is the thing that cost you not just a game but potentially the series. The Rangers, for example, deciding to start Max Scherzer, who hadn't pitched since, since September, that was their chess move. That's the chess move that seems to be crumbling things around them. They don't win tonight. They're down 3-2 going back to Houston. Like That's why I enjoy all these decisions a little bit more in the postseason. The regular season, I think that's a totally fair thing. I actually think it's better in the postseason. I know a lot of people probably disagree with me there but I just enjoy it because it is just the chess match that's going on, what's going through the manager's head. Are they going to go with their gut? Are they going to go with the numbers? How's the other team going to respond? I actually enjoy this a little bit more.
0: He's Tanner Hendrickson. We've got Bradford Bruns working back in the studio for us today. We are broadcasting live at the E&B Granite Studios out at the sintine Community Ice Center where the Blues have taken the ice for morning skate. Uh, according to Lou Korak, there is a full pro- uh, practice today Buchnevich is not part of it, although he was on the ice a little bit earlier. He was on the ice prior to today's practice, so um, he is at least getting closer to to his return we will get the update on the lines as we get them here over the next few minutes we will certainly pass those along to you coming up next we're going to talk to bill connelly espn.com's college football writer want to get his thoughts on a big weekend in the college football slate both the big 10 big time to sit or big time game that could ultimately determine the outcome of that conference and for mizzou can they get off to their best start since 2013 with a win tomorrow against south carolina we'll ask bill next here on 101 espn all these crazy alien stories can't be
1: To the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
0: Alongside Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We've got Bradford Bruns back in the studio today. We are broadcasting live at the E&B Granite Studios out of the Centene Community Ice Center. We'll pass along the morning lines coming up here in just a little bit, but we'll do that after we go to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by our friend. ESPN.com's college football writer he's Bill Connolly joining us here on the show Bill we appreciate the time as always man it's good to talk with you as Missouri is six and one to start out the season looking to get off to its best start since 2013 if they're able to get a win tomorrow against South Carolina how do you feel about the Tigers chances in this one
2: um I mean the matchups certainly are are pretty favorable South Carolina really only does one thing well and that's throw the ball which is you know, if you're a Missouri fan, you'd rather a team try to throw than run at the moment. So that all that all works and, and for whatever reason the South Carolina defense just has not clicked at all this year. And and in theory that that's good news for Missouri as well. Bill,
0: for those that don't know, you, you have a history of covering Missouri for Rock M nation and, and you're you're yourself a Mizzou fan. So I did want to ask you, you know, what what's been your impression, not as an analyst, put the fan hat on for a second of watching this team this year get off to a 6-1 start?
2: Well, it has been, you know, for, for a number of years, from 15 to about 21, it just felt like the, the overall fan excitement just got a little less and a little less each year. But uh, the athletics department over the last couple of years it seems to have done a really good job of, of reconnecting with students, uh, kind of helping the atmosphere grow. And, and we saw that last year. So for that to then carry over into this season and then have the team to match uh, has has been really interesting. It's been, what, this will be the third straight sellout. Don't think that's happened since, like, 08. Um, and, And it's just kind of a fun buzz that you kind of catch around the stadium and around Columbia at the moment. So no complaints about that. That's always a lot more fun than the opposite.
3: Bill, Missouri's next opponent will be Georgia after South Carolina, and that's like three weeks away. They've got to take care of business first. But what do you make of this Georgia team? I, they're number one in the AP poll, and they've been that all season long. But I look at them, and they beat Vanderbilt by 17. They beat Auburn by 7, South Carolina by 10. What, what should I make of this Georgia football team?
2: Um, I mean, the, the one thing that kind of overrides everything else, I think, is just that the one time we had to see their fastball, we did um, you know, against Kentucky, that was a big game. Kentucky was unbeaten and very you know, very confident, very uh positive, and they just came out and, and, and it was what twenty one nothing after about fifteen, twenty minutes. So um I I, I still feel like their fastball is gonna be better than anybody else's. It's just you know, we saw last year a little bit. There was a little bit of a hangover, some attention span problems. You know, Missouri almost took advantage of that. We're seeing a non-stop attention span problems this year. They can't get going. Obviously, they're a little banged up as well. And uh, I mean, I guess the question is, can they shift into fifth gear and stay there at some point? Because if not, I mean, Missouri. Ole Miss, Tennessee, maybe Florida. A lot of teams are, are, are better than Vanderbilt, better than Auburn. Uh, and Auburn almost beat Georgia uh, a few weeks ago. So it's, it's kind of up to Georgia to show that they're ready for a sustained push. We haven't necessarily seen that yet.
0: You can find Bill Connolly's work over at ESPN.com. You can follow him as well, at ESPN underscore Bill C. Bill, the biggest game going into this weekend is two top ten teams in the AP poll, two top ten teams in your SP Plus rankings. It's Ohio State and Penn State. When you look at that matchup, what do you think is going to be the, the deciding factor here? What is the thing that you're most looking forward to watching?
2: Well, there's going to be a ton of pressure um, on Kyle McCord and Marvin Harrison Jr. You know, basically the entire rest of the Ohio State skill core is banged up, and granted, you know that just means you bring in five-star freshmen off the bench, so the floor is still very high there, or the ceiling's very high, I should say. But um, you know, Penn State's got by far the best pass defense they've faced, maybe the best pass defense in the country. Ohio State hasn't run the ball very effectively. It's it's. You know, I, I, this is the best chance Penn State's had at winning this game since at least 2018. I mean, on the flip side, obviously, Ohio State's defense is better than it's been in a while, too. And with Penn State, they've just done kind of a, a an Iowa-plus kind of deal where they don't ever make big plays on offense, but they grind things out efficiently, they kill clocks, and they let their defense kind of dominate. Uh, that's worked so far, and it'll work against most of the teams on their schedule. I just It, it feels like you need a little bit more playmaking than they've delivered so far to, to beat Ohio State in Columbus.
3: Bill, another top 25 matchup this weekend, Florida State's hosting Duke. How can Duke pull off an upset of Florida State this weekend if they're going to go on the road and take them down?
2: Yeah, I wish if Riley Leonard was healthy i would be i would have 100% talked myself into an upset here because i don't think it would be much of an upset duke's kind of been a top 20 level team this year their defense is fantastic their offense isn't amazing but when leonard is healthy he avo- he avoids pressure really well he avoids negative plays in general and they're able to at least kind of you know maintain in the field position battle and let their defense strike it's a very opportunistic defense overall and So that all works. I I think this will be a closer game than expected just because I think Duke's really good. Uh, But if Leonard's not healthy, uh, you know, if he's just kind of playing with one leg out there, can't really avoid pressure. Or at the backup, the redshirt freshman's in, I'll I'll see how Duke could possibly uh, score enough, even with a good defense. I don't see how they could score enough to win this game.
0: We talked to Bill Connolly coming into the season, and you said one of the the biggest storylines that you're going to be monitoring in the upcoming year is the Pac-12 in its final year of existence finally looking like one of the best conferences in America because of the top-level quarterback play in the conference. Well, that has come to fruition, and maybe even more so than what we expected so far, with Arizona looking better than anybody could have possibly thought. Bill, going into this weekend, USC has another huge matchup, as they're going to have basically every single week. They've been incredibly underwhelming this year. The defense has been as bad as expected, but the offense has also hit some struggles uh, in the last couple of weeks. Weeks, where are you at with your level of concern for this USC team right now?
2: <laughs> well, I think we're past concern. I think it's over. I don't see how they could possibly win out and stay in the in the well in the national title race for sure. But in theory, you know, maybe you'll need uh, eight, eight and one to get you into the Pac twelve championship game as well. And I just they they underachieved. They were getting worse and worse each week for a month, and it finally caught up to them last week in South Bend. So, yeah, I mean, I think obviously the defense is still the main concern. I would assume the offense. You know, sometimes you got to lose to kind of reset and and find the right gear again. I think the offense will be fine. I just yeah, I just don't see much here, especially compared to Oregon and Washington, maybe even Oregon State as well. It does feel like uh, we know the two teams from this conference who could make the college football playoffs. One of the yeah, you know, they played each other last week, uh, and and now the question is just can they get to the finish line without flipping up again? They both have to play Oregon State. They both have to play Washington State. Oregon has to play Utah. They both have to play USD. That's a rough road to, to try to emerge unscathed. And, and we'll see if they can do it.
3: Well, Bill, that's what I was just going to ask you next. Is the Pac-12 the only conference that could potentially send two teams to the college football playoff? In your mind?
2: Uh, well, I, I don't want to pretend there aren't scenarios where you know the Big Ten, two out of the three in the East, get in, or even you know if Alabama were to win out and Georgia actually starts looking good, but Alabama still beats them in the SEC championship. There are plenty of scenarios, but you do figure in terms of likelihood, you know, unless, unless we get just the right kind of situation with a 12-1 and one and an 11-1 and one in the Big Ten East, uh, you, you do figure the Pac-12 with Washington and Oregon are going to have a shot at it.
0: Bill, we'll get you out of here on this. Based on your opinion, your numbers, everything that goes into it, where does the SEC rank this year among the best conference in America?
2: Well, th- what's funny is this kind of—it all depends on what we decide best is. Is it just the top three or four teams? Is it the top two teams? SEC, in terms of my SP Plus ratings, SEC still grades out number one in terms of average because they only have one bad team. Uh, but that's not really how a lot of people, you know, judge conferences. It's—it's it's how many contenders do you have? How many top 15 or 20 teams do you have? And if that's the the criteria, then you could really make a good case for the Pac-12. you I don't think you can make a case for anybody else. Uh, But, yeah, the the SEC's main strength right now isn't necessarily that they have a lot of elite teams. They just only have one bad one, and and so every week is a potential loss. They still have that going for them, I guess.
0: The SEC and Pac-12 have, like, flipped roles this year. It's strange to watch. Hey, Bill, we appreciate the time as always, man. Going to be a fun weekend to watch this as we consume it all on Saturday. We'll certainly be consuming your work over at ESPN.com. We'll talk with you again soon, my friend. Sounds good. Got it. That's Bill Connelly, ESPN.com's college football writer. I think one of the best in the business. He, he is the biggest college football fan that you will find. He is a numbers nerd like myself, but he also breaks down the game, talks with coaches. He's he's really, really good. And if you consume his stuff over at uh, ESPN.com, you'll be a, a smarter college football fan as a result. T-Bone, what's the game that you're most interested in? Not necessarily the best game this week, but the one that you're most interested in watching this week in the college football slate.
3: Well, I, I am going to go with the best game. It's Penn State-Ohio State. Ohio State. I, sure. I I think Penn State's better than Ohio State, and that's before you, you look at them and you see that they're dealing with injuries offensively. I, I, I've been saying this from early on ever since I saw Penn State just beat the tar out of Illinois. I, I think they might be the best team in the Big Ten. I, I think Michigan's up there because they're good defensively, and they've got J.J. McCarthy at quarterback, and Penn State's not as explosive, but I do think they are better than Ohio State, and then it does come down to that scenario in which Bill said where you know, do you see where, what we saw last year where you see two Big Ten teams get in, and one of them doesn't even get to the conference championship game that's probably the best route for Penn State. If they beat Ohio State, and then if they end up losing to Michigan and it's close and Michigan wins the Big Ten, they have to have a bunch of other scenarios play out outside of the conference. But Penn State's a really good football team, and I I think they've got an outside shot to make the college football playoff.
0: I'll I'll go the other route. Um, I... I want to see what happens with Riley Leonard. If he's going to play in this game, then I think it becomes really interesting. If he misses, and we don't have the latest update. The last time that we heard uh, from Duke, it, it sounded optimistic, but we'll see. If he ends up playing, I think Duke's the last team on Florida State's schedule that can't beat them. If he doesn't, then I think Florida State's running the table, and they're going to end up in the college football playoff as a result. I, I think this is a massive game with playoff implications, and if you're a, a fan of a team that is kind of on the outside looking in, or certainly if you're a fan of a team that has won loss already on the season, you want Florida State to lose tomorrow because that opens the door for a lot of, a lot of other opportunities across the country. So that'll be the one that I've got a, a lot of – my eyeballs on later on tomorrow night all right coming up in about 15 minutes or so we want to get into the blues conversation once again because last night there was one line in particular that I was maybe most disappointed by and it's been the line that has disappointed me so far this season it's a problem if this doesn't get corrected we'll get into that coming up at the top of the hour ask us anything is coming up next
1: We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions, we may have the answers. Maybe it's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN.
0: Four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for ask us anything. If you guys have any questions, sports or otherwise, go ahead and get them in the, on the air comfort service text line right now. Let's start out with this from the six one eight guys. After just seeing the first three games of the season, where do you see the Blues finishing this year? Uh, this is, I mean, a question that's going to get us to overreact to what we have seen so far this year. I would say like 6th or 7th in the in the Central Division is where I would probably see them fish, finishing based on what we have seen so far this year. That can change, but as of today, I, I think they're probably like right around that 6th spot in the Central Division.
3: Yeah, I'm kind of going to stick with what I said early on. I think they're a team that probably in that range in the Central, 5th, 6th, and missing the playoffs just on the outskirts around that like 80, what was last year, 92, so like 80, 85-point threshold. I think they're like a 500 Point percentage team, and and I had that thinking they were going to be an offensive minded team, Um, but I'm still going to stick with my original prediction of. You know, there's still a lot of the same trends we saw from last year. Offensively not generating enough shots. Uh the power play still looks bad. We'll see what the penalty kill is. It looked good early on, but got kind of shellacked last night. Yeah. So there's a lot of trends that we're seeing from last year in the first three games. So I'm gonna stick there right around a five hundred team.
0: Three one four, three nine nine, nine six four six is the air comfort service X line from the three one four. Guys, do you believe that Tommy Edman will be the Cardinals starting center fielder in twenty twenty four? I think if you were to make a betting line today. Tommy Edmond would be my favorite to be the opening day starting center fielder. I would say behind him is Lars Nupar, and behind Lars Nupar would be Dylan Carlson, and behind Dylan Carlson would be somebody from the outside that we have not discussed. Probably right behind that, though, and not too far behind would be Victor Scott. So I think there's a lot of different options, but I would say today my favorite would be Tommy Edmond.
3: I agree my favorite would be Tommy Edman and I think it would be a significant favorite if I had to guess right now but keep an eye on Scott in spring training can he make the jump from AA to the major leagues I don't know if his bat skills are there but I think if really good spring training and you see the speed from him they may say hey we had to if we're better defensively this year a lot of things change, and he's probably their best defensive center fielder in the whole organization right now in terms of both speed and his arm. Yep. So if he has a really good spring training, he probably could win the job, but I would agree he's probably, like, fifth best in terms of, like, if you've made an odds board.
0: Yeah, I, I think he will play in the big leagues at some point next year. I think spring training's huge for him. He, he's got to show well. if. He, He could potentially earn his way onto the team, but I don't think there's any way he has an average spring training and then finds a way onto the team. All right, from the 3-1-4, guys, if Mizzou wins out, and I understand that's a long shot, is it possible that they get into the college football playoff? It is a long shot in both regards. They would need, I think, a little bit of help. I think the help that they would need is probably Florida State losing a game prior to the college football playoff. That would certainly help their case. And then they would need one of or both of the Pac-12 and the Big Ten to just kind of cannibalize themselves. If they get those two things, then, yeah, there, there is a path. Or Oklahoma losing. That would help, too.
3: Yeah, Oklahoma losing would be huge. I, there's a path, but it is a very long shot because I think you're right. In, even then, like I would think like a – one loss Michigan team say it is. Well, I don't know. If they lose a the big Ten championship game to, like, Iowa, who's coming out of the That's West. That's the thing. It's
0: so hard to know exactly how all of this stuff yeah. happens. Like, is there a chance? Yes.
3: There's a chance. It's a very long shot chance. But, yeah, I, I can see where you play the scenario out to where they, get, they could get in if they went out.
0: He's Tanner Hendrickson. We've got Bradford Bruns back in the studio working the board for us today. You guys can get involved as you can each and every day at 314-399-9646. You can also watch us live on YouTube at 101ESPNSTL. Just go over to YouTube, type that in, 101ESPNSTL. You'll be able to find us. You can also re-watch all of the shows in their entirety on YouTube over there. You can kind of scroll through as well if there's a specific segment that you wanted to go back and listen to. You can do all of that on the YouTube channel after the show today. We're right back to the
1: BK and Ferrario Podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101
0: ESPN. With Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. You got BK and Ferrario live from the EB Granite Studios out of the Centine community Ice Center here on 101 ESPN. Bradford Bruns back in the studio for us today in Creve Core. T-Bone, last night was bad, and last night was the beginning of what has gotta be a change for the St. Louis Blues. Jeremy Rutherford tweeted this out a little bit ago. He said, last night I asked Braden Shin about nipping the flat performance in the bud, not letting it snowball like it did last year during their losing streak early in the season. Braden Shin's response was, quote, we're done talking about last year. We'll come to the rink tomorrow and know what we have to do. We've got a lot of things that we need to clean up, end quote. First one on the ice today was Braden Shin. That is the kind of thing that you expect out of your captain. First of all, that statement to be made of, this is not last year. This is not going to fall into the same issues that took place last year. This is one game. We'll get it figured out. We've got to be better. We know that. We'll be back on the ice tomorrow morning to correct these things. That's great. That's what you should hear from your captain. Now it has to happen. And T-Bone, one of the first thing that has to change is this top line. And I'm not saying personnel-wise. You don't necessarily have to shake it up, and they haven't. Earlier today as they uh, took the, the ice, it was Saad, Thomas, and Kairou once again as the top line. Your second line was what it finished as last night with neighbor Shannon Kapanen. Third line, Verona, Hayes, and Blay as it has been all year. And then Torpchenko, Alexandrov, and Sonny was your fourth line. They did not change any of the defensive pairings today either. They're believing in these guys. They're saying, hey, we believed in this group of players to be able to get things going early on in the season. We started out the year one 0 one we're not just going to overcorrect based on one game that went poorly for us. Cool. But the Saad, Thomas and Cairou line was outshot 9 to 3 last night at 5 on 5. They were outscored on the ice 1 to nothing, they were outchanced 6 to 2. The Buchnevich, Thomas and Cairou line has been outshot so far this year 10 to 5 through 2 games. They were outchanced 9 to 7. They have not scored together at 5 on 5 so far this year. Thomas and Kairou are your highest paid players for a reason. Those are the guys that you're building this entire franchise around. Those are the guys that you believe can be the pillars of whatever it is that the next era of Blues hockey looks like. If they can't get things going offensively, we know they're not elite defenders. This is not going to work. And I'm not just talking about this year. I'm talking about in the long term. I'm not telling you that that is the case, that this cannot work with them as a part of it. But what I am saying is until they get things going, the entire team can't really become what we thought it was going to be.
3: Yeah, 100% agree with you because it is – it they are the line that had the highest offensive ceiling coming into the year with or with uh Thomas and Cairo and so far they just haven't done much at all i mean Last night, I was there in person in the press box. After the first period, I I looked at Alex and I said, was the top line out there for the most ice time? Because I recognized the fourth line being out there. I had to look to see if the stats showed that they were out there the most in that first period. And they were, but they weren't doing anything. It's quiet right now. It's too quiet for that first line. And I don't know if it's because they're so focused on, hey, we got to improve our defensive game. Make Kyra thinking, i got to be playing defense, defense, defense. And then they're just not getting out on the rush, or they're playing so far back defensively that they can't get out of the zone. Own, and by the time they do, they just dump the puck in and get off the ice. But you're right, that line is going to have to do something for this team because the offense starts with them. They are the guys that had the ceiling of, hey, they're, Thomas and Kairou, they're going to be point-per-game guys. They're going to be the guys that maybe if they take that next step can be get to that 100-point threshold. Can Kairou become the superstar this year? And so far, it's just been too quiet for those two, and it's going to have a trickle-down effect. That line breaks out, you're going to feel that trickle-down effect, I think, through the rest of the lines in the bottom six.
0: It's like having a lineup where your three and four hole hitters aren't hitting. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I know what? I saw that this past, or not this past October. Last October, I saw that.
0: If they don't hit, you're done. Yeah. Like It's game over. We can talk all we want about anything else that's plaguing a team. If your three and four hole hitters aren't hitting, you're done. You're not going to win. If your ace doesn't go out there and perform, he pitches. Like, If you're the Dodgers, this is basically what we saw from them this postseason. Clayton Kershaw got shelled. Freddie Freeman didn't hit. Mookie Betts didn't hit. Boom, you're going home game over i don't want to hear about anything else the playoff format i don't want to hear about the defensive plays that could have been made the bullpen nothing those three guys don't perform you're done for the blues coming into the season we knew if bennington doesn't perform and he has by the way he's been great so far this year through two games but if he performs and you don't get the expected roles out of robert thomas and jordan kairu you're done you're done game over end of season like we're we're going to go into the off season and it'll be all talk about okay What do you do? How do they correct this? Because clearly things have gone awry. This is not the end of the world. These guys can get things back on track. There have been way worse three-game stretches in Robert Thomas and Jordan Kyrer's career than what we have seen so far through three games this year. They are incredibly talented players. I think, like, out of the three games, Jordan kyra has been pretty good for probably half of those, like, game and a half in total. Talking about 60 minutes per game. He's been, like, pretty good for about 90 minutes so far this year. I haven't really noticed robert thomas that's not a necessarily a good or a bad way but i just haven't noticed him and if that's going to be the case this year dude like he he's got to get this thing figured out so offensively this team has a real problem right now and that is at all strengths whether it's power play five on five whatever they, they are struggling to generate offense the best way to microwave fix that offense is to get your top line going and that has the trickle-down effect of what you said there, uh, T-Bone. You can get other guys going, like Vrana, who had, a I thought, pretty good game last night. I think he was like the only really noticeable piece on the ice all night long. Those are the kinds of guys that can start to become secondary pieces, fit in where they're supposed to be if that top line performs. I thought one thing that I noticed last night, and we talked about this whenever Buchnevich went down, your options after that top line are less appealing than I think a lot of us were expecting. Now, the Hayes, Blay, and Verona line, if you look at the numbers underlying for, for them so far this year, it's been the one line that's really performed for you. But other than that, man, you're just you're not really getting a whole lot of offense from anybody, and there's not a whole lot of guys that I can point to and say, like, ah, oh, they're just underperforming relative to expectations. Most of it's just really been blah. For yeah. them offensively so far this year.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I, I think you noticed kind of the depth last night. I mean, Alexandrov essentially got benched through that second period at one point. Like, he, they started double shifting someone on that fourth line. I think, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Torp that started double shifting there. But he almost got, he, he essentially was benched last night, Alexandrov was, because yeah. he had a turnover in the neutral zone that led to a goal. Torp had one of those as well, and then it led to his demotion down to the fourth line. So, yes, you definitely noticed that depth of scoring. And I think you're spot on. I mean, though, I think you can pick out a player probably from each game offensively that you like. Like I thought Kapnan was solid last night, same with Verana, but it's never been a line. And that's the thing is you got to get one line that starts clicking. And though the numbers may show that that hayes Hayes Verana line has been okay so far, it just hasn't been noticeable to me because you're right. It just feels blah, whether it's the top line, which yes, the top line does need to get going for this offense to get going overall. Can you get a line in this Pittsburgh game that you go, okay, that's the line that's clicking? Because though at times I've felt like the fourth line's been good, that's not an offensive line. That's an identity line. Can one of those top nine get going? Like I, That's my biggest thing is it, every game I've left so far through three games, and they're 1-1-1, one, one, and, one, and I'm not trying to overreact, it has always felt like it's just a, I can circle an individual that's played well. I can't circle a whole line that I felt like has played really well so far.
0: 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X-Line. The mic drop feature is also on the 101 ESPN app. We haven't called for these in a minute, but I want to get your guys' thoughts today. Where are you at with the Blues right now? Just how are you feeling about the start of the season, especially offensively? I I leave last night's game, Debo, bone like my honest thought about it is, and I, I hope this gets corrected. Again, this is... It's a three-game sample size, and I feel the need to put this disclaimer out there because I don't want it to sound like I'm overreacting to anything because I, I don't feel that way. I think they can get this thing back on track. I really genuinely do. I feel bored watching the Blues right now. And that doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad thing. Like, you can win playing boring hockey. But this team right now feels boring. And I don't think they have players that should feel boring. Like, Robert Thomas is an exciting young individual talent. Jordan Cairo is an exciting talent. Jakub Vrana, we saw it last year, has game-breaking talent. I think that you've got a guy on the blue line right now with Tori Krug that, like, when he's at his best offensively, he's a fun player to watch. I think Justin Falk is a pretty fun player to watch. I think Colton Pareko can be fun. I don't think he's, like, an offensive-minded defenseman. But when he's getting out and he's starting to break away, like, that dude is – crazy explosive for being 6'5 and 200 and some odd pounds. But this team has no buzz to it. They have no energy to it. They have no juice to them right now. And I I don't know how you manufacture it. And I don't know if it's because of the system change. I don't know if it's just going to take a little while for them to get the chemistry going. I, I don't know. I can't explain why this is the case but they feel very boring right now as I'm watching them on the first three games of the season
3: boring and predictable would be what I would say too because I and when I say predictable predictable that probably falls more on special teams but the power play to me like when I when I think five on four I should be thinking that's where the excitement can come that's where you can kind of like last night you can get yourself back into a game or you can jump a team early on when you go on the power play maybe you can take that one nothing lead. They're, what, 0 for 7 with, like, three shots? Like, they, they might be better off declining the penalty. <laughs> like, th- that's the way the power play feels right now. And, and I think that's a big part of this, too, is I, I not only are they just kind of boring to watch, and I think that's part of the scheme, I, and we'll see if it kind of changes, but they're... It just feels predictable right now. Like, they get kind of hemmed in the zone. They're going to kind of block the shots. They get out. They go in, and it's one shot, and then here we go again. And they got to play defense again. They come back down the ice, one shot. Here we go again. Like, it felt last night watching that game, I could basically have, like, wrote down what was going to happen watching that game.
0: Have you ever gone through a day, and then you get home, and you lay your head on your pillow at the end of the night, and you're like, I don't remember anything from today. Like, it just, it was a complete blur. They're, they're, I, I completely went through the motions from start to finish. Like, we all have those days, right? I feel like that's how I feel watching the Blues right now, where it's like everything is just a blur. Nothing really stands out. None of it is particularly like jump off the, the screen at you. It's just, okay, they played a hockey game, and then we left. Like Jordan Bennington, I think maybe, like if you want to make an argument for anybody, Binner has been the one thing that kind of jumps off the screen at times, where it's like, whoa, okay. That looks like the Bennington that I remember that can steal you games. Other than that, there's really not a whole lot of anything that jumps out to me. Maybe you could say, like, the blocking of shots. They've been better at that this year. No doubt about it. Um, I thought Verona's goal last night, that was a good one. Good good goal for him. Kairou's goal the other night, good goal. That's kind of it, though. And, like, if you leave three games of hockey being able to identify seven moments over the course of the first 180 minutes of hockey, and really even more than that because they've gone to overtime in two of their three games, 200 minutes of hockey basically that we've watched so far this year, and I can think of like seven moments that are interesting, that's, it's not the style or the results of hockey that I was anticipating coming into the year to say the least.
3: Yeah, 100% with you, and it doesn't fit the modern game, if that makes sense. Because when I think modern game, and like again, there's no right or wrong, I think by moving to this scheme, but when I think of the modern game, it is McDavid's flying up the ice. He's going to score a goal. I, I think of not maybe not even a McDavid, but not even like a superstar like him. But I think of, oh, a guy's got a puck, and he's going to go flying up the ice, and he's going to go score a goal. It's not really happening right
0: now with the Blues. <laughs> Somebody on the text line said, guys, there are 15 players in the NHL right now who have either more or equal the amount of goals that the entire Blues team has so far this year. The offense has been awful. We can call a spade a spade. There's no doubt about it. The offense has to get a lot better. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, it sure sounds to me like the Yadier Molina as the Cardinals coach in some capacity this year is a matter of when, not if. We'll get into that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, let's dive into some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN.
1: We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
0: All right, let's dive into some NFL quick hitters alongside Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We've got Bradford Bruns working the board for us back in the studio today. We're broadcasting live at the E&B Grand Studios out at the Centene Community Ice Center. T-Bone, let's start with this. We talked yesterday a lot about the NFL's trade deadline. It's coming up in about 10 days now. I hadn't really considered the possibility, if I'm being totally honest with you, that the New York football giants would trade Saquon Barkley. And then yesterday, Saquon Barkley basically said something to the effect of, you guys know how I feel. I want to be here. I want to be a part of the Giants. And now suddenly I feel like the Giants are going to trade Saquon Barkley. Do you think that the Giants will do this? They don't have him on a long-term deal. They franchise-tagged him in the offseason and gave him like an extra million bucks because he was unhappy. Do you think it's possible Saquon ends up getting dealt this year at the deadline?
3: Uh, I... I think it's possible, but I'm not 100% convinced they're going to do it. Should they do it? Absolutely, because that team stinks, and they need to go into a rebuild or a retool, if you want to call it that, because they've got the right head coach. But I've said this on this show since I started. Any team built around a running back is a team that's got a very limited window for success. And as you see this year, they're, what, 1-5? in Yeah, they should absolutely be looking to move him but it's the Giants. The Giants do Giants things. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do what's right. I could see where they decide to keep him because he's the face of the franchise, yeah. but they probably should be trading him this NFL trade deadline.
0: So the other buzz that's currently taking place is about some other receivers that could get moved. According to ESPN.com, Jerry Judy's name is one that we'll hear. Hunter Renfro is going to be in discussions as well. You might hear one of Chase Young or Montez Sweat uh, on the move at the deadline. And then according to ESPN.com, basically if you play for the Broncos, you're probably going to get traded. Other than Pat Sertan, uh, he's like the one guy that it sounds like is probably not going to be moved from that team. So uh, that's the latest as it pertains to the NFL trade deadline. T-Bone, going into this weekend, we'll get more into our like overall big picture uh, preview coming up in the 1 o'clock hour. The game that I'm most interested in is Dolphins versus the Eagles. Yesterday, you, me, and Alex all took the Dolphins plus the two and a half points on Sunday Night Football. If the Eagles were to win this game, and we all end up being wrong, what does it tell us about the Eagles at this point in the season?
3: I, I think it tells you that they are the team that we thought they were coming into the year, which is a... Super Bowl contender, and I still think they're that, but it's just been kind of a, it. it they feel like the Georgia effect for me that we heard Bill Connelly say. To where like I, I watch them play, and I go, man, they're five and one, but they don't feel like a five and one team. And then if they come out here and they beat the Dolphins, they bring their fastball. And, and I, I think that's the biggest thing for me is, though they are five and one, and the NFC is weak, I think they are still a Super Bowl contender. Can you do it and look impressive? Because it'd be one thing to get to the Super Bowl in the NFC. But Do you have a shot against a team in the AFC? Because I think the AFC is the better conference by far. And this would be a, a good sign and give us the right idea of, okay, the Eagles can actually contend with the best of the best.
0: It tells me a lot about their defense. That, that's what it will tell me on Sunday is if they're able to get a few stops against this Dolphins team, it tells me that their defense is, is going to be good enough that it can help them while this offense gets things figured out. I think they really miss Shane Steichen. He's the offensive coordinator from them last year who is now in Indianapolis, and I think has done a pretty good job with that Indy team despite all of the injuries that they've been dealing with. The Jonathan Taylor situation that was weird early on. They're not great, but I think he's done a really good job of getting the most out of that offense. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, there's been a lot of growing pains. Getting used to this new play caller. It's not really a new scheme, but just it's different when you have a new guy that's in charge of your offense. So... I think it'll tell me a lot about their defense if they're able to get a win this week. Again, I'm still predicting, though, that Miami is going to be the one that ends up coming out on top in that one. T-Bone, who's the team that you're most curious about going into this weekend? You need to see them show you a little something. Or you think if they are able to get a win, maybe you're going to look at them in a different kind of way. Who's the team for you that comes to mind in that regard?
3: So I've got two that come to mind. Really, it's it's one, but a second one that would kind of pique my interest if they pull off an upset. Uh, the first one is Baltimore. Bal- Baltimore 4-2. They're another one of those where they've got the above 500 record, but they haven't been that great. Yep. And I know this we, we mocked. ESPN going, oh, can the Lions prove something? No, but the Ravens probably can. Can the Ravens beat a team in the NFC that is viewed as a contender right now at home, and Vegas is basically saying to you this is a pick and Baltimore's favored by three. They're just getting that because they're the home team. I think Baltimore can prove a lot because the offense just has not looked good. I don't think Lamar's looked that great. Defensively, I think they've just been fine. I think there's a lot to be said if they can pull off this win against the Lions. Then the other team I just want to throw out here because I feel like the season's done because they lost their quarterback. But if, if the Colts can pull off a win against that great Cleveland Browns defense at home with Gardner Minshew, all right, I'm willing to listen to the conversation of them finding a way to back themselves into the playoffs.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I just – maybe they find a way to back themselves in, but I, I don't think that there's any ceiling to what they're doing because Anthony Richardson is out there. They're a team that when he went out, I kind of lost interest in them. The team that did it for me last night was the Jaguars. I needed to see them do that. Short week, Trevor Lawrence is playing hurt. Goes into New Orleans, which is a really good defense. They've got their issues, certainly, and I can't believe how bad Derek Carr has been for them this year. Um, But that was a good win for them. The line never made any sense. It was two points in favor of New Orleans. I didn't understand that. The Jaguars are showing us over the last couple of weeks that they might be the third or fourth best team in the AFC again this year.
3: I'm actually a little surprised that you picked them because – I, I was not all that impressed leaving last night with Jacksonville because they were up twenty four to nine mm-hmm. and they almost blew it. And, and if it's not for a catch in the if it's not a drop in the back of the end zone, that game's probably going to overtime. Like though the offense did look better than I was expecting, short week Lawrence being injured.
0: I need to see them have the ability to win games like that. I, I think it's important for teams to be able to grind through a game. Thursday night football changes things. Those to me Thursday night football games are a pass fail test, especially when you're on the road. And if you pass the test against a quality opponent, if they did that exact same thing against the Denver Broncos or the Chicago Bears, I'd be feeling a little See, bit I don't, differently about it. I don't it. feel as New Orleans
3: is a quality opponent.
0: Their defense is, I think. I think their defense is pretty good. I don't think the Jaguars' defense is great, so I didn't expect them to completely shut down the Saints. But I, I thought that was a, a solid performance overall last night by the Jaguars. Um, and, and it was enough for me to feel pretty good about where they're at at this point in the season. I get it, though. Like, the, the problem is... If not them, then we're talking about the Ravens. So none of the teams in this kind of muddled middle of the AFC have really shown you a ton. True. To your point, though, I'm looking back to that game with the Ravens and the Lions. The Lions are a three-point underdog in this game. If they're able to go into Baltimore, tough place to play against a good defense and an offense that has been underwhelming this year, but all of the underlying factors scream, hey, regression is coming in a good way. This is going to be a good offense eventually. If you're able to prevent that from happening for another week if you're at the Lions, man, it's time to start talking about them as a legitimate Super Bowl contender. And it's time to start talking about them maybe even as the best team in the NFC, not named the 49ers. So a lot of stuff up for grabs in the NFC this week between the Lions, the 49ers, who are potentially going to be playing without uh, Christian McCaffrey, it sounds like. They need to go into Minnesota on Monday night, have a good performance there, into the Eagles with their big game against the Dolphins. And I
3: think we've mentioned this before, but it's like, one of the last few tests on the schedule for the Lions for quite some time because after this game, you've got the Raiders at home. You're not going to learn anything there. By week, then they go to the Chargers, which that will be a decent test for them on the road, but it's not like it's going on the road in a tough environment. And then Bears, Packers, Saints, Bears, Broncos, Minnesota, and then at Dallas, second to last game of the week. The division
0: is just so bad, man. (laughs) It's so bad. They have like three meaningful games left the rest of the way. Ravens, Chargers, Cowboys. That's it. Other than that, we're going to just kind of sit back and watch the Lions do what they do, which is fun to watch. And then we're going to be shocked
3: when they get bounced in the first round. Of course.
0: (laughs) Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk tour. If you guys want to get involved in the show, 314-399-9646 is the place to do so. You guys can always watch us on YouTube as well at 101ESPNSTL. But coming up next, it sure sounds like it's a matter of when, not if. Yadier Molina is on the bench with the Cardinals next year. What does that mean? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN.
1: We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Uh, next season, 15. You see, I, I read the same things that you guys read, and, and you guys are very smart. Everybody is very smart. And, and I think the chances of Yachty being here in 2024 are really, really high. They are really, really, really high. Again, what is he going to do? I don't know yet. We don't know yet. But 2024, if you, if you, if if I was a betting man and if I was in Vegas right now, I'll put money down that he's going to be here in 2024 doing something with the Cardinals as a coach.
0: That was Polio, Polo Asensio earlier today on with the opening drive. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We're broadcasting live at the E&B Granite Studios out at the Centene Community Ice Center. We've got Bradford Bruns back in the studio handling things there. Polo Asensio basically makes it sound like, and this has kind of been the reporting as well, it's a matter of when, not if. It is announced that Yadier Molina will be a part of the Cardinals staff in 2024. T-Bone, when you hear that, Yadier Molina, let's assume it's a bench coach role. Yadier Molina, Cardinals bench coach 2024. Your thoughts are blank.
3: It's a great hire by the St. Louis Cardinals because you get a former player that is alongside Oliver Marmol, and it's a risky hire from the Oliver Marmol standpoint in terms of... If things go awry early on, I know exactly what the fan base is going to be texting in and potentially saying at the ballpark. But as we've mentioned multiple times, I like the the fact that Ali Marmola is, you know what, I know that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to look at Yachty if things go south here, but I need his leadership in this locker room to help me out and be on my side in helping me make the decisions. And I just think he's a guy that, if there was one person you said to me, hey, Contreras needs to get better with his framing, preparation, blocking, Who's the guy that you would want him to work under? I would say Yadier Molina. And I, I think that is the number one thing that he's going to be instilled with. Even if he is in the bench coach role, the number one job that he's probably going to have is work with Wills Contreras. And don't, you don't have to make him a gold glove defender, but can you get him to be average in terms of his blocking and his framing?
0: So 314 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. We I, I do want to hear from the listeners. Hi, what are your thoughts on the idea that Yadier Molina could be back in a Cardinals uniform next year as a coach? We got this from the 636. Guys, my thoughts are that Moe is going to use this as an excuse to not sign pitching. Then don't let him. Like, it's that simple. Don't let him. He shouldn't. It can't be. It's not an excuse to not sign pitching. This is a completely separate move from what they're going to be doing in the offseason. Now, you may believe, and I, I know there are some that are out there that are of this opinion hey, or Molina is bait for pitchers to come here because if you've got Yadi on the bench, like if you're a pitcher, that's a reason to sign in St. Louis. I think it's a reason. I don't think it will be the reason. I don't think most pitchers are going to be looking at who their pitching coach are or who the bench coach is on a five- to seven-year deal that they're signing because the odds are in Major League Baseball, you're probably going to have multiple of those guys in that specific capacity during your time with that team. If you're making a decision because of not a manager, somebody that is a lower-level coach, I think you're doing it wrong, personally. That being said, it doesn't hurt to have him there. And this is not an excuse to not go sign pitching. This team needs the personnel. And this would be the thing that I would say about it. If Yadier or Molina is a bench coach for the Cardinals in 2024, it tells me that the fundamentals should be better in 2024. I kind of view yadi and I heard Polo say this yet or earlier today, and I think it's a really good point. Yachty could be this era's version, maybe different because he didn't play all of the positions in the infield, but he's a baseball savant. This era's version of what they have had with some of the roaming guys that can go through the minor leagues or the big league club that helped them with the fundamentals. And I think that's something that has been maybe not missing, but it's something that they can, can, can continue to improve upon at the big league level. I would also add this. If the Cardinals next year are to the place where they are firing a manager, and I don't anticipate that, but let's let's go down this path for a second. I, I do think that also signifies that maybe things didn't go as well with Yachty as the bench coach as what we were previously expecting them to. I don't think that you just immediately bring him in here and say, like, that's our future manager. No, you're, you're bringing him in here to fill a role. You're bringing him in here because you want to improve Wilson Contreras defensively. You want to get better with your – you're pitching. You want the defense to be more fundamentally sound. You want your manager to have a baseball savant in his ear when it comes to the decision-making side of things. So all of those things are reasons why you make this decision. I don't think it's necessarily because they're projecting two, three, four, five years down the road and saying, Hey, we want Yadi as our next manager. So let's go ahead and bring him in right now as the bench coach.
3: Yeah, I I agree with you there because it's not, I know a lot of people will point to, and I know I've mentioned this kind of behind the scenes here when we're prepping for the show, it's not like the Mike Yo hiring behind Ken Hitchcock, because remember, though it was he's the coach in waiting, that was because Ken Hitchcock had announced he was going to retire. Only is not retiring after next year. This is not a coach in waiting. And, and to your point on, if if things go awry early on, not only do I think it's a sign potentially of, you know, maybe Yadi didn't work out as the bench coach, the front office didn't do enough in the offseason. Yep. And then not only are we talking about the potential of hey, are they going to fire Ali Marmol? We're talking about a potential, is there going to be a changing across the organization? And that would also fall on to, are we going to see a change in the front office? Will we see a new Pobo next year? And if you do see a new Pobo, what does that mean for the managerial job? Because typically that guy would want to hire his own manager and not inherit one like a Yadier Molina if he took over if they did that. I don't think that's going to happen either because I think they're going to do what's necessary to at least get themselves back into the playoffs. Um, but I, I think that's the other side of this too, is if it does go awry, it's not just on Oliver Marmol. I, it is on everybody that's involved because they say, you know, it's not just Moa said this this year. It wasn't just Ollie for the reason that we lost, whatever it was, 92 games. That was on us. We didn't give him a good enough roster. Well, guess what? If you're losing again early on, it probably means that you didn't build a good enough roster for him going into next year. The
0: other thing that I will find really interesting, what is Yadier Molina going to be evaluated by next year? Like, is everything that goes poorly going to be Ollie's fault, and everything that goes well going to be Yadi's credit? Because that is something that I do find to be a little unfair. If it ends up being that way, I kind of felt that way with Skip two years ago. Where everything that went well, how the Skip Schumacher is doing. Everything that went poorly, a decision, for, for example. Oh, that's clearly Ollie Marmol's fault. Guys, Ollie was in charge of spring training. While Mike Schilt was the manager here, that is the job of the bench coach: is to come up with the spring training plan to make sure everything is seamlessly ready to go going into the regular season. A big part of that is working on fundamentals. So, if you liked the fundamentals while Mike Schilt was the manager, yes, Mike Schilt absolutely deserves some credit for that because he put an emphasis on it. So does Ollie Marmel because he was the one that actually put the plan into place during spring training to make sure that it was emphasized. The same thing is true for Skip Schumacher. While Skip was here, he was the one that was putting together the spring training plan to make sure all of that was going down the right place. Last year, everything got thrown into whack. Part of that is because your bench coach got here way late. Part of it is because half of your team was off in the World Baseball Classic. There's a million different reasons why that was the case. But weird stuff happened last year, and it resulted in what we saw on the field. This year, if Yachty's in charge of spring training, I think it's going to go really well. And if this season, some of the decision-making is really good, I think part of that is because they will have better players. Part of it is because Yachty's there. And part of it is because maybe, in some ways, Ollie learned from some of his decisions this year. So... It is going to be interesting to see how we end up giving and divulging some of that credit or the blame for what goes well or poorly this year if this ends up happening.
3: It's interesting you say that because like, if you were to ask me before the show and you said, hey, Tanner, how would you grade a bench coach? I'd go, I don't know how I'd grade a bench coach. Because like, what if you asked me, how do I grade a pitching coach? Well, I'd say, okay, well, if something goes wrong with Stephen Mass, for example, in the rotation, what is the plan to try and get him back on track? And Dusty Blake came up. Well, Dusty Blake and the coaching staff, I should say, not just Dusty Blake. Took the plan of let's put him in the bullpen, see how it works. Let's work with him behind the scenes, show him what that we're seeing with all the technology we have and what we believe is going to help him pitch usage. All that can we get him back on track? Same with uh, the why am I drawing a blank on who else they did this with? Oh, Jordan Hicks. They did this with Jordan Hicks early on. We were like DFM, DFM, <laughs> and then they were able to fix him and they were able to trade him and get some something in significance in return at the deadline. So. It's easy to kind of point to, okay, how are you grading a pitching coach? How are you grading a hitting coach? How do you grade the manager on decision-making? But if you were to just generically ask me, hey, how do you grade a bench coach? I would go, you know, I, I don't really know. As long as it's someone that the manager says, I trust this guy by my side, then, okay, he gets an A-plus, then he's doing his job. Ali Marmol wants to talk with Yadi and figure out how are we going to make these decisions. Let's figure out this bullpen. Here's our plan coming into the day. What happens when the plan changes because Michaelis has to leave the game because he got hit around in the third inning? That's. There is no easy way for me to say, here's how I'm going to grade Yadier Molina. And I think you're right. There shouldn't be the, oh, things are going right. Yadier must be the reason why. Things going poorly. Yadier couldn't mess that up. That's got to be a Marmol thing.
0: 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service Tax line from the 314. Guys, I'm worried that a team's going to end up stealing Yadier Molina from the Cardinals after he's their bench coach, kind of like they took Skip Schumacher to be the manager of the Marlins. It's possible, maybe even likely, that that ends up being the case. But guess what? Good. Good. If you prove that being the bench coach here in St. Louis can be a stepping stone job for individuals looking to become future managers, that is a good thing for the Cardinals in the long run. Skip Schumacher was a positive thing. Why? Because now you can go to Yardier Molina and say, hey, your goal is to be a manager in in the big leagues. Your best chance to do that is by coming here to be the bench coach for a few years with Oliver Marble. And if it ends up working out that way, great. Now you can go back to Matt Holliday in a few years and say, hey, we know you want to be a manager in the big leagues. Maybe now is the right time for you to become the bench coach. Or you can go to John Jay and say, hey, you've done a great job down with the Marlins. We want to give you a bump in salary, a bump in position, so that way you can be a future manager. Maybe you want to go to Daniel Descalso. Like, There's a bunch of different guys that Oliver Marmel has as part of his Rolodex, and I know people don't believe it because they think everybody hates Ollie Marmel for some reason, but if Yadier Molina is willing to take this job to be next to Ollie Marmel and he ends up getting a manager job out of it, I think that speaks highly, A, of Ollie, that one of his former players who now wants to work for him is willing to take on that role, and I think it speaks highly of the Cardinals organization that this is a place that can be a a breeding factory, essentially, for future managers across the big leagues. That is a positive thing in every sense of the word for the Cardinals. doesn't mean it's going to work. Yeah. This might end up in ending in disaster. I don't know how it's going to go. I, we have no clue what it's going to look like with him as a coach. Maybe he decides halfway through the season, hey, this is a bigger time commitment than I was anticipating. I don't want to do this anymore. That's possible. That is in the range of outcomes for next year. But if you got a chance to add, uh, add Yadier Molina to your coaching staff, cool, buddy. That is something that you absolutely have to jump on. All right, final thing here, T-Bone. Somebody at the beginning of this segment texted in, you can't use this as an excuse not to go out there and get the pitching that you need. We all agree with that. Everybody to a man, whether you're in the listening audience right now or speaking up right here with you and me. That being said, this team needs multiple front-end starters, two of them. They need bullpen arms to add to the mix as well. As you're watching the playoffs, and we see most teams really have three starters. Some of them maybe have a fourth that they like. Nobody has five starters that they trust in this year's postseason. They're, by the time you get to a game five starter, they're like, uh, oh, go back to the number one starter. <laughs> <laughs> Skip that one. No, no, no. When you look at the Cardinals offseason, and you think about that third starter that they could add. So you're talking, you've already added two of them. Maybe it's, let's say, Nolan Gray added to the mix. Now you've got Michaelis as well. You've got Matt. You've got Thompson that third starter that you want to add to the mix. Would you rather go big quote unquote on that guy by either signing a James Paxton, signing one of the injured guys or going and trading for Brian Wu or something, or go get multiple relievers with that, those assets that you were using, whether it was money or players in trades to go get the third arm. What, what would you rather have the big time third starter or two big additions in the bullpen?
3: I, the more I've thought about this, the more I lean towards the bullpen arms because I I think the that fifth starter, I think you can find somebody at the trade deadline, and I think you can do that too on the relief market, don't get me wrong. But the relief market, we see that thing is wild when it comes to what you're going to give up for potential arms. A fifth starter, you don't have to give up a lot. Like Look what they gave up for Quintana. He was brought in essentially as a fifth starter and ended up becoming a number one starter for that playoff team two years ago. Same for like when they acquired John Lester. They didn't really give up a ton. They gave up Lane Thomas, but that was kind of a loss asset here in St. Louis, who developed in Washington. You don't have to give up a lot at the trade deadline for a fifth starter, but you have to give up decent pieces. Look at the haul the Cardinals got for Jordan Hicks. They got J.C. in that deal. So, I I like the idea better of, okay, if we can spend big, let's go get two big bullpen arms that can help us out because they're going to help us both in the regular season and in the postseason. The number five starter, he helps you in the regular season, but you're not going to see him in the
0: postseason. He's probably going to be a reliever.
3: Yeah, and you can find him at the trade deadline. And the Cardinals have shown, though they get a lot of crap for a lot of things and some of it fair. Most of it. (laughs) Most of it fair, true. They have shown, though, the ability to identify starters that can come in and help them at the trade deadline. Did it with Jay Happ did it with John Lester, did it with Quintana, and they did it with Montgomery. You can find a number 5 starter that's not going to cost a lot at the trade deadline going into next year. If you truly say, you know what, we need to upgrade over Zach Thompson or whoever it is that we may bring in on like a million-dollar deal, yeah. you can go find that guy at the trade deadline, and it's not going to cost you a lot.
0: That's where I'm at. It's why I've been saying all along I would target one of those guys that's injured right now as my third starter because I would go into the season saying, yeah, we've got some competition for that number 5 starter spot. We've got options there. And then hopefully by midseason – Let's say it's Tyler Malley. He could end up being a guy that ends up slotting in front of Miles Michaelis for my playoff you rotation.
3: He's almost as good as a trade.
0: Almost as good as a trade. Not quite as good, but okay. almost as good as a trade.
3: Felt like a mo comment there for a minute. And
0: I would use some of those assets that I don't have to use because he's coming back from injury and probably won't get a long term deal. Probably won't get a ton of money. I would use some of those assets instead. On being able to bolster the back end of that bullpen with a guy like Jordan Hicks, or maybe even just multiple like really solid pieces that can help me at the back end of the pen. All right, coming up in about ten minutes or so, we've got some quotes from Craig Berube earlier today on why they're not making significant changes to the lineup. We'll get into that coming up at the top of the hour. The junk drawer is coming up next. You're on one hundred and one ESPN.
1: We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on one hundred and one ESPN. Let's open it up The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario
2: Brought to you by Fenton Bar & Grill Best Trashed Wings in Missouri Dine in, carry out 7 days a week
0: Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We're broadcasting live in the e Granite Studios out of the Centene Community Ice Center, where the Blues just finished up with Morning Skate. We'll get to some of the comments from Craig Berube on why he decided not to change up the lineup coming up here in less than 10 minutes. But right now, it's time to dive into the junk. short. T-Bone, what do you got for us today?
3: So I saw this story a couple days ago, and I, I find it to be interesting, and I wonder if anybody would attempt this in our, in our building. A 50-year-old man who was in Spain was arrested for faking heart attacks at multiple restaurant locations to get out of paying the bill. He did it 20 times, according to the authorities, and he got caught on the 20th time when he tried to leave the restaurant by pretending to be unwell.
0: That's amazing, first of all. That's amazing. Um, I think the person most likely to do this is probably Alex. Now, he's not here to defend himself, so I find it unfortunate and unfair for me to have a shot like this at him. It's it's a little bit of a pot shot. I would think he would be number one on this list. Maybe you could see somebody like Marshy pulling a stunt like this. And Jackson I would throw into the mix say, as well.
3: I threw Jackson as a dark horse into the conversation yeah, of who I might would, try to pull this off. I would off.
0: say those are the three that immediately come to mind.
3: Yeah, I do agree, though. I, I know he can't defend himself, but Alex was the first one, on that one. I could totally see him doing this at least once.
0: And now he would only do this if it was like the food wasn't up to his standards, right? He was disappointed oh, by the yeah. food. It came out. It was the wrong thing. He's like, I'm not paying for that. And they're like, well, you have to. You you ordered it. And he's like, well, you gave me the wrong thing. I'm not paying for the food that I ordered or I'll, I will pay for the food that I order if you bring it out here, but I'm not paying for this. I could see him doing something like I,
3: that. I could never have the guts to just try and pull this off. But mostly now, because now I know he can be arrested for it. But also, too, like, I, I just I hate being in that uncomfortable spot of, like, people looking at you when sure. you're at a restaurant. Like I hate like when you go somewhere like you go to, out for your birthday and they and you're like okay nobody's saying anything that it's my birthday and then a family member mentions it behind your back and then everybody comes out from the kitchen's like happy birthday oh. and everybody in the restaurant looks at you. Oh, I just want to like if I could run out of the restaurant, I would.
0: So, I think that we have gone almost too far in that direction. I think there are certain places where you go where you know that is something that they do, right? Like you know if I'm going to Joe's Crab Shack, They're going to be singing and dancing, right? That's a part of the entire theme of the night. If I go to the home of the Throat Rolls, right, Lambert's, you know there's going to be some stuff that goes on while you're there. They might throw your cake. Yeah, like there's certain restaurants that you go to where you understand this is part of why you're going, honestly. It's part of the entertainment for the night. If I'm going to like, and I'm just using this as an example, Chili's, I don't need you to sing and dance as you're coming out bringing me a cake because it's my birthday today. There's just certain spots where we can do that, and there are others. Basically, the other 95% of restaurants across America, we don't need to do that. We, we don't need to do
3: that. Like, I, like fancy Italian for me. Like, that's one of the things. I, I love getting Italian food for my birthday. And I, remember, I don't remember where we were, but it was a nice Italian restaurant. And my I guess it was my uncle that said it. Either my uncle or grandpa had told them that it was my birthday. And they all come out like behind my back oh. and there's like a little brownie and it's got like the candle and it's like like a sparkler on it. And I'm like, oh please put this away. I, I don't need this. Everybody here is enjoying their fine dining. Did they sing?
0: Yeah, they sing.
3: Okay. We're right
1: back to the PK and Ferrario Podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
0: That's T-Bone. I'm BK. We've got Bradford Bruns back in the studio along with us for the show today. We are broadcasting live at the E&B Granite Studios out of the Centene Community Ice Center where the Blues had morning skate just a little bit ago. All finished up now. We'll talk to Scott Hartnell of NHL Network about the Blues coming up when he joins us at one30 But Craig Berube was asked after practice today where they didn't really make any significant changes to the lines. In fact, if you were watching the game last night, you saw how they were out there in the third period. It's the exact same today. They have the same top line. They ended up going with neighbors on that second line instead of Torpchenko. Torpchenko drops back down to the fourth line with Sonny and Alexandrov. And then the defensive pairings were all the same today at practice as well. So here's what Craig Berube had to say specifically about changes to the defense. It's a long year. Right now, this is the six that we're going to go with. I don't see a change yet on it. It's hard for the guys that aren't playing, but it is what it is. You got to bide your time. I like the size that Tucker and Scandella bring to the lineup. I thought Scandy's best game was last night. I thought he had a pretty solid game, and I like what Tucker brings to the table. He brings physicality and some bite to the game back there as well. End quote. T Bone, I don't necessarily have an issue with the way that they've gone about this now. I think you could make a case that Perunovic, to be able to help the power play, maybe you bring him in and that's the move that you make. But I don't think necessarily that defensively it's been the issue. And I'm not sure there's any combination of these forward lines right now that you could jumble them up as much as you want to. But, like, it's the same players. Eventually they just got to play well. So I I don't have a problem with them not changing up the lineup. Eventually, it comes down to whether or not the guys are executing. And last night, whether it was offensively, defensively, the special teams, they didn't execute anywhere. That's got to be what gets fixed.
3: Yeah, I, I don't have much of an issue with the defense because I think you're right. I, I, one, it's clear through three games that they want to be playing this kind of slugfest hockey. Now, don't get me wrong. They would love more offense. But it's clear this is kind of what they want. They want games to be kind of grinded out of fares. If you're doing that, is Pronovitz ready to play that level right now? Sure, he may help you on the power play, but can he play this defensively? Same with like a Bortuzo. Bortuzzo, a better defensive-minded player. But I, I don't have an issue with the defense not being changed. The forward lines, I get it. You're going to throw neighbors into the top six. That's really the only move that they have right now is – Figuring out who's going to slide into the top six with Booch being out, so I don't have a big issue with that. The one thing that I I just haven't seen, and maybe it came out, and if you saw it, correct me if I'm wrong here. I do want to see the power play change. That is the one thing that I do want to see these units get kind of shuffled around because it it's not like it, it's not like the the game last night where it was that was the first like whoa what just happened moment. The power play's been bad for all three games, and not just bad abysmally bad to where they've been I think outshot now on the power play. Uh, So that is the one unit that I want to say, okay, change that up completely. Do whatever you need to. Put that in a blender. Figure out what you think is going to work out best. Because what I've seen so far, those two power play units just are not cutting it out.
0: How do you do it, though? Because while I would like to see some changes, the one that I can point to is just like, hey, I'd like to see Verona on the first unit. Like, full stop, that's it. That, that would be the one change that I would make. If you flip Verona and Kapanen, I think you're okay there in terms of the personnel that's happening. But at the same time, I think the power play unit and their struggles on that unit are symbolic of the issues that this team has offensively in general. They don't control the puck well enough. They don't pass very well. They don't. They're, they're not hard on pucks right now. They don't win puck battles well enough. And when they do all of those things, finally, for a possession, they don't shoot it. They are way too pass-first centric, and it's been a problem for this team really for a couple of years now in that regard. So I I don't, and I think Verona maybe helps that. Verona is unafraid to shoot the puck, but that would be the one real change that I think kind of makes some sense is going with Verona on the top unit. But other than that, I, I don't see a lot of personnel changes that you can make, really, there.
3: I, I think you're right. I think it is just as simple as throw Verona into that top unit and pull somebody off it and push it down because they lack a one-time shot on that top unit. And as much as they want Cairo to be that guy... He doesn't really have a one-time shot that's really threatening. I think you saw last night. Like, Vrana can really let that thing fly. I know it was kind of garbage time. It was late in the third period when they got that power play. I saw Vrana take, I think it was two slap shots, and they were both really close. And he nearly took a head off, too, on one of those. He needed to lower that shot. But I, I, I want to see them get Vrana onto this top power play. you know, Because you're right, he's unafraid to shoot the puck. And, I, and I'd also consider moving Falk up there instead of crook Maybe switch the defense around. And I get like, oh, that's not a big change at all. But I thought Falk was commanding that second power play unit pretty well last night. And, the, and again, it was a small sample size that we saw because I think they only had two power plays, if I'm not mistaken. But I, it's just got to be something. Change for change, I think, right now, would be best for this team. And I, I think Falk moving into that top unit and putting Vrana on that top unit would help out that top power play unit. And as much as, like, then you're saying, well, what, does that really help out the power play? Well, can, can the first power play be dominant right now? Because... I don't really care about the second unit. And I know like that's probably something that people don't want to hear me say. That first unit's got to be the one that scores the goals for this team. And right now, the second unit was better
0: last night than the first unit. I mean, they stopped going to the first unit first. Yeah, <laughs> they were going to the second unit rolls. to open the power plays. And,
3: and I just think like, you put Vron on that unit, you get a one-time shot on that right side over there with his left-handed shot and I think it changes a little thing. Because right now you've got Thomas who's on his offhand, and Thomas isn't known as a shooter. Every time he gets the puck, I can tell he's looking for a pass. He's not a threat right now on that side. They need a threat on that first unit right now if they're going to make this power play successful.
0: I think the difference of opinion between like what fans would like to see right now, what you're talking about right now, and I think it's all pretty reasonable, and what the team has decided to do, and this is just a guess. I, I think it's about the team viewing last night as a one-off. They view that as, hey, last season was last season. This season is this season. Last night was one of one, where we just completely crumbled offensively, defensively, everything else. And I think for us on the outside looking in, we're saying, no, that's not a one-off. You've had some of these issues that have started to show up in the first two games of the season, and we didn't take them overly serious because it's only two games, and you were winning. You were getting points out of them. And this is a continuation of the team that we saw, mostly with the same players, from last year. So how are you going to fix it? So I think it's those two different mindsets that are coming from inside of the team versus on the outside of the team. And the other thing would be this. like If I'm Craig Berube, what I'm trying to instill in my team right now is a sense of confidence, a sense of calmness, a sense of everything's going to be fine because we are not going down the path that we did last year. This is not going to become a 7-8 game losing streak this time around. I'm not jumbling anything up because there's no reason to jumble anything up. You guys are going to be good. Like We're all good. There's one bad game. Throw it in the trash. Let's get back out there tomorrow night against Pittsburgh and put, put out a better performance. Most importantly, Benner's going to be in net. I think that's going to give these guys a lot of confidence to know that, hey, the guy that basically stole us three points in the first two games of the season – He's back out there behind us. He's going to have our back. So I think that's what they're trying to project right now. Whether you want to buy it or not, that's a different thing entirely. But I think that's what the Blues are trying to project is a little bit of a sense of calmness, a sense of stability, a sense of we're confident we'll get back on track.
3: Yeah, I I guess I understand that. But I think now that you've seen it happen, I understand that for the five-on-five aspect of things defensively with the forwards, not generating much. I understand that because this was the first game in which it was, whoa, we just got shellacked on home ice by Arizona, who's an up-and-coming team. Power play hasn't looked good in any game. And that that's the one reason that I would say, like, if you're going to change one thing, and it, I don't think it's panic because I think it's justified. I, I can understand the idea of let's stay calm. That was a one-off. And three, I think, what, three of those goals were on the – on the power play for the Coyotes last night. I think you were outscored 3-2, 5-on-5. So I can understand going, all right, relax. We'll fix things on the penalty kill. We'll get that figured out. That was the bigger issue last night. We don't got to change much 5-on-5 with our lines and our defensive pairings. Man, the power play doesn't even look competitive right now. Like I said this jokingly. They might be better off declining a penalty right now. That's why I would say, like, if that's the one thing that I say that change should be made because I think it is a justified change, is because the power play. It's not like that was the first game the power play looked bad. It's been bad for all three games so far this
0: year. I somebody on our text line said, guys, this this didn't look as bad at the end of last season as it does right now. After the trade deadline, this team actually looked okay. They they played reasonably. They were okay. They were like a 500 team after they, the deadline. They were 20th in the NHL in, in points percentage after the trade deadline last year. And if you're looking at goals four per game, they were seventh. The problem was, as we knew all season long, they were also dreadful in terms of goals against. They were giving up nearly four goals per game. And maybe most importantly in this conversation, T-Bone, they were 24th in power play percentage at the end of last year. Their their power play was still a problem even after the trade deadline last year. So if you're looking for what needs to be improved, how do they get this thing back on track, it, it really does need to start offensively with the power play getting things going.
3: By the way, real quick, I, I think the reason I see that text a lot come in when we, we come off as negative or saying that we're seeing the same trends from last year of, well, they were good after the trade deadline. They really weren't. They were okay after the deadline. I think the reason that it comes off as man, they were good after the deadline. Look, they looked better, is because they were better than the expectation after the deadline. Like I think the expectation after the deadline was, man, this team is going to be like twenty seventh in points percentage after the trade deadline. They just traded away Vladdy, Ryan O'Reilly, Barbashev, and they ended up being a little bit better than expectation. So in our minds, I think it comes off as. Well, they were better. They were good after the deadline. They were good after the deadline. No, you look at the numbers. They were they were fine. They were fine. Yeah.
0: Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get Scott Hartnell's thoughts on all of this. Is the defensive scheme that the Blues are running taking away from their offense right now? We'll talk to Scott Hartnell about that possibility coming up at 1.30. But coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us four options, we'll tell you which one's got to go here on 101 ESPN
1: we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn this is bk and ferrario time now for one's gotta go we offer up the talking points and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 espn 314-399-9646
4: That, that big.
0: 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service X line for one's gotta go you give us four different options we'll tell you which one's gotta go here on bk and ferrario with tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley we've got bradford bruns back in the studio alex is out today he'll be back in on monday guys one's gotta go halloween candy edition bradford you can get in on these by the way the first one up halloween candy edition snickers rhesus skittles or starburst t-bone which one's oh, got to go
3: this is easy get those skittles out of here dude i can't do skittles i i know this i know how it's gonna sound they make my tummy hurt they do make my tummy <laughs> hurt though and i'm not a fan of those I, I can get in on the starburst i like snickers i like Reese's. i like that peanut butter chocolate get those skittles the hell out of here bradford tanner, what are
5: you going with tanner do you just not want to get tropical or are we talking about the original skittles too vintage man
3: no, I, I just don't want to get trop- tropical. I'm <sighs> out. I, get those out of here.
5: Fair enough, I guess. I will accept that begrudgingly. BK, I've got to go with some Reese's, man, in any form. Oh, whether you're what? talking about Take 5, Classic, it doesn't matter to me. Those pumpkins, some of which we will say admittedly oh, okay. are in the 101 ESPN studio today. We should have explained. They, yeah, they may be uh, disappearing a quickly. <laughs> Sorry.
0: So, one's got to go means this one is the one that you hate, Bradford you get to select the Reese's. So that's part of the three that remain if you get rid of something else. Which one out of these four do you think is the worst? Oh,
5: man, I guess Tanner stole my thunder, quite frankly, because if tasked with these other treats, well, yeah, I'm going to put them ahead of the Skittles, quite frankly. I just didn't get okay. the overall perception there. I was I was enamored with the Reese's. My apologies. I was overwhelmed with the Reese's vibes. <laughs>
0: no, he heard Reese's, and he's like, oh, man, I that's could go for Reese's right now. <laughs> Dude, you know what I've been getting after lately is the. Uh, it's not one of the, but the, the Snickers almonds, <laughs> that those hit a little different around this time of the year. Uh, the one that's got to go, though, is clearly the Starburst. For all of the reasons that you said about the Skittle, except for the fact that these got stuck in your teeth as well. like The, the Starburst are very clearly the worst out of these four options. It's
3: like options. leftovers, man. Mm,
0: yummy. No, no no, go there. All right, one's got to go Cardinals infield edition. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service sex line if you want to send your options in. Cardinals infield edition, Edmund, Gorman, Donovan, or Goldie. Which one's got to go?
3: Uh, I hate to say this is easy, but it is. It's Tommy Edmund. He's more of a center fielder now, more or less. But I, I think when you look at those guys, Brandon Donovan, all the, all three of those guys do something well, and Tommy Edman is just a good baseball player. And there's nothing wrong with being a good baseball player, Donovan, great at getting on base. Really good batter's eye. Nolan Gorman can slug the crap out of the baseball. Paul Goldschmidt, honestly, just great at everything. Can hit for average. Get on base. Can slug as well and great defensively. Tommy, I he's got defense going for him, but he doesn't get on base, doesn't hit for a high average. I think he's the one that's got to go here.
5: Bradford? obp has actually slipped somewhat for tommy Edmond over the last year plus i think donovan here in this instance boots edmund from the conversation because just last season gentlemen in 2023 frankly i think we were beginning to see more of that offensive upside as well from brendan donovan a bat with danger and so with all of those things working in his favor i do believe it has to be Edmond in this instance too a tough one but edmund nonetheless
0: Hell yeah, brother, that's the correct answer. We're going to go ahead and sweep this one as well. One's got to go, weather edition in St. Louis. Downpouring rain, extreme heat, extreme cold, or extreme wind? Which one's got to go? The downpour, the heat, the cold, or the wind?
3: It's the extreme heat. I I can handle, like, the extreme cold. I can't do the extreme heat, man. It's miserable. I don't even want to step outside. And I, You know me. I like to go for my old man walks. I can do those in the extreme cold. I cannot do those in the extreme heat because not only is it like 110, it feels like 130 with the humidity. The extreme heat's got to go for me.
5: I have flipped, actually, over the course of the last decade, guys, and being in education for a bit will do this to you, I think. <laughs> Give me totally scrap get rid of the extreme wind have you ever spent upwards of 30 to 45 minutes ferrying children onto buses and into cars following well, dismissal not actually, no imagine you never that this, but
0: i have not had to do that in my <laughs> personal life
5: imagine that with the most extreme wind conditions it's not uh, even a question in my mind
0: I actually think Bradford's onto something here.
3: Yeah, I didn't even think of that because, like, I do, like, broadcasting outside, too, but it's, like, it's miserable. <laughs> and,
0: like, you can have a not totally bitter cold day yeah. that feels horrendous because of the wind. The wind is actually what kills me. So, I actually think it is the extreme wind days. And you guys know I'm a runner. I, running in the wind is... Not fun at all. It's not fun to run in the, the cold or the heat either, but you can find a way to make it work. You can certainly run in the, the rain. At least run the in wind the, sucks. At
3: least running in the cold, you kind of warm up a little
0: bit. Exactly. Uh, one's got to go cookie edition. Chocolate chip, snickerdoodle, oatmeal, raisin, or peanut butter. I'll go ahead and get things started here. Peanut butter cookies are trash man. I like oh. peanut butter in general. trash: But out of these four, peanut butter is very clearly a distant fourth oh. among these four options.:
3: No shot. It's the oatmeal raisin.
0: Ugh, those are disgusting. Oatmeal raisin is Look, the number one choice. You know what? You, you know these.
3: you know what you should be eating if you're eating an oatmeal raisin cookie. No cookies, because that's a healthy cookie. You shouldn't be eating cookies. No, get it they're out not. There's no such thing Mouse as a That's got raisin we'll in it. It is a healthy cookie. It rounds up to being healthy. That one's the one that's got to go, Bradford.
5: I firmly believe we should do a separate podcast on this topic because we have three completely dissimilar opinions. I will take those oatmeal raisin cookies from Grandma each and every time. Get rid of the snickerdoodle, actually snickerdoodle option. No thank you.
0: That would have been my second. I'm not a big snickerdoodle guy either. I I think it's a little overrated. All right, one's (laughs) got to go. Microwave Snack Edition. This will be our last one before we get to Scott Hartnell, former NHL forward on the other side. Microwave Snack Edition. Bagel Bites, Mini Corn Dogs, Pizza Rolls, or Chicken Nuggets. Which one's got to go, T-Bone?
3: Oh, man. I think I'm going to get rid of... Bagel bites, pizza rolls, those are good. I'm going to get rid of the mini corn dogs, actually. That might surprise a lot of you. I actually love any kind of chicken, and then I love pizza. So I'm going to have to get rid of the mini corn dogs. Those things have got to go.
5: I too will have to jettison the mini corn dogs. Too many times as a youth, I'm really in the midst right now of having a nice run with the chicken nuggets as well as the bagel bites. But <laughs> are you a rid- dinosaur
0: nugget guy? Like, what's what's the go-to for the for the Bruns household? Right oh, now? those
5: Dino Nuggets! I mean, BK, you're yeah. going to anticipate that soon enough, if not already. Oh, yeah. I'm telling you, the All Dino right. Nuggets, both with the quality of the taste as well as the design, you can't beat that, man.
0: Yeah, they hit a little different, too. <laughs> like, 1 o'clock in the morning or 4 oh, in the afternoon, yeah. regardless of when you're eating them. They, they just they hit the right way. Uh, Bagel Bites, by the way, a very underrated food solid. in this one. I, I'm not as big of a fan of them when you microwave them. You throw those in the oven for, for oven. a little while. woo baby. True. Uh, the Mini Corn Dogs are very clearly the one that's got to go here. The other three are, like, elite-level snack foods mini corn dogs are trash I'm actually surprised that T-Bone said that the mini corn dogs are I just want a
3: hot dog it don't got to be in the little corn starched thing that's there coming up
0: in about 15 minutes or so we'll get to the NFL weekend look ahead with our biggest games that we're going to be looking at this weekend the upset picks of the week we'll get to all of that coming up in 15 minutes Scott Hartnell former NHL forward now NHL network analyst joins us next to break down what's going wrong with this Blues team Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We are broadcasting live at the EMB Granite Studios out at the Centene Community Ice Center with the Blues had morning skate early today. There is no real changes to the line combinations as you'd expect coming off of last night's game. Uh, what they finished with is what they will start with, or that's the anticipation going into to- tomorrow night's game. But right now, we're happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Scott Hartnell, former NHL forward, now an analyst with... With the NHL Network, Scott, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today?
4: I'm doing wonderful. How are you guys?
0: Uh, doing all right. A little bit of a disappointing start to the season for the Blues. The first two games didn't go too poorly. It was a lot of you know low scoring affairs, and then last night couldn't have gone a whole lot worse for them. Uh, Scott, from the ten thousand foot view, I'm, I'm curious, what were your expectations for the Blues going into this season?
4: Well, they got uh, some core veterans there, which which I absolutely love, uh, and some young guys: Robert Thomas, uh, Kyrou. We'll get to Scott Hartnell here in just a little
0: bit. It sounds like he dropped on his end, unfortunately. Sounds like the blue season right there. <laughs> good start. Good energy. <laughs> oh, excited. Liked where we were coming from. And then, boom, just game over almost immediately. Hopefully, we'll be able to connect with him uh, once again here in just a minute. One of the reasons why we wanted to have Scott Hartnell on is because he actually played for Craig Berube while he Scott Hartnell was still in Philadelphia. It was the final year of Berube's tenure, the second year of Baruby's tenure as a head coach out in Philadelphia. So he played for him. He played with Braden Shin. So he's got some experience with two of the most important pieces to what the Blues are trying to build this year. I also want to get his thoughts on what the Blues are trying to accomplish defensively. I don't know if he's played specifically the system before. He's probably played in a zone at some point, though, in his hockey career. So let's get back to Scott Hartnell, who joins us now via the 101 ESPN Hotline. Scott, you were talking about how you liked the mix that the Blues had coming into the season, and then we lost you all of a sudden.
4: Yeah, I don't know why you guys are hanging up on me. I (laughs) I hardly got two words out of my mouth, but... Uh, no, I, I I like the group. You look at a group, uh, they got to be deep up front. You got to be able to score goals and, and uh, you know, obviously keep the puck out of the net. And, and I got a lot of faith in, in Binnington is going to backstop uh, uh, that team as well. So it's going to be a it's it is a competitive league. And, you know, I think they're they're right there.
3: Scott, you mentioned their goal scoring, and I thought coming into the year, this was a team that was going to be at least have some depth in goal scoring. And they've just scored four goals so far, three games into the season. Have you been a little surprised by their lack of offense so far early on this year?
4: Uh, Well, sometimes it happens, right? You don't want it to happen uh, your first few games of the season, right? Where you can't, uh, you're gripping your sticks a little tighter. Uh, You know, you're trying to pick your corners instead of just releasing them quick. You know, all those kind of things, right? Uh, You know, you're going to go through patches where. You're not getting many goals and you're, you're kind of frustrated. But to start the season, it, it, it is a little frustrating. I've been there before where, uh, you know, I, my, my first year in Philadelphia, I got traded from Nashville. And I think I went the first 20 games without a goal. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to score. Right. So uh, and then I ended up uh, finishing the season with 20 some goals. So it, it, it'll come for those guys. That I got no doubt about it. Scott,
0: I am curious. I I don't know if you've played the specific system that the Blues are going with this year, but they're changing from a more man-to-man style defense to more of a zone where they're kind of packing it in in front of the net because they gave up so many high-danger chances right in that crease uh, a year ago. So they're going more of that zone style this year. And it does seem like maybe it's it's affecting their offense a bit. Have you played this style defensively before? And if so, how does that impact your offense?
4: Uh, well it, I think it takes the pressure off by uh, your goaltender a little bit for sure because you're gonna have guys uh in the in the shot lanes, you're gonna try and uh, deter those point shots and, and uh you know, forwards will have to, you know, put their brave shirts on and, and uh you know, blood, eat some pucks, if you will. So it, it'll help in that respect. Uh, you know, I think maybe it's affecting the offense. I can't see it doing that much just because Uh, you know, you're kind of sitting back, you're going to read the plays, and and you just got to get on your your horse to get going offensively. But, um, yeah, it's it's not easy just to change. You know, they've had a lot of training camp. I'm sure the guys were there early kind of, uh, you know, having some meetings and stuff uh, pre-camp. So, uh, you know, I think it just takes a little time to kind of work itself out.
0: How, did you have a time in your career, Scott, where you had a change in system, whether it was when you got traded to Philadelphia or coaching changes that took place while you were in Philadelphia? And if so, how long did it take you to get comfortable within a new system typically?
4: Yeah, I, I think it takes a, a couple weeks, right? Uh, it, it happened to me in, in Philadelphia. John Stevens got fired. It was, uh, you know, He was very defensive-oriented, uh, uh, You know, kind of stacking up, block, blocking shots, same kind of deal. And then Peter Laviolette came in, which he loves his offense. He changed the offensive system, uh, changed the uh, the D zone, and and the first game that we played, I think we we lost like eight to one to Washington, and Ovechkin had a hat trick. So it it's not going to happen overnight, and you know eventually you get you feel more comfortable, uh, you know where guys are going to be, you you, you kind of reading off your teammates that kind of stuff. So it's uh, the offense will come, but you know defensively it might take a little bit of a time.
3: Scott, you played with the Blues head or you played for the Blues head coach, uh, Craig Bruby in his time in Philadelphia and your time there as well. What what is like Craig Bruby's message after a game like last night? It's early on in the year, trying to stay calm and positive, one one and one, but just losing on home high six to two. What is Craig Bruby's message you think to the team today?
4: Well, I I think he probably said don't ever let that happen again. You know, the effort, uh uh, you know, like you said, the backup goal he was in, so you, you gotta play hard in front of him because uh, it's not easy for, for goaltenders to play once every, you know, 10 or 12 days, right? So it's uh, it's something that I'm sure he addressed uh, uh, right off the bat, probably not, not in those uh, choice words, probably had a few uh, explicits in there, but, uh, you know, Chief's a, a demanding coach. He wants you to work, uh, uh, you know, practices are short, but they're hard, and, and uh, you know, he, he'll get that thing figured out. The other guy that you have experience, and by the way, we're talking to Scott
0: Hartnell, former NHL forward. He's now with NHL Network. The other guy you have some experience with, it's interesting because it was at the beginning of his career, is Braden Shin. He is now the new captain for the St. Louis Blues this season. Did you see this kind of uh, leadership quality from Shin early on in his career when you were with him in Philadelphia?
4: He's a great kid. Uh, Unbelievable family. His brother, Luke uh you know obviously is uh, a great guy as well but just uh he was always kind of talking hockey wanted to talk wanted to uh, you know watch highlights uh, you know kind of just break stuff down right uh, uh when you're just chatting on the buses on the planes and and you could just tell he's just wanted to know everything about everything right so uh he's got the experience obviously he won a cup in 2019 with you guys as well and uh you know i, I always look at, look forward to see we summer in the same place out in western canada so i always look forward to you know spending time with him and you know his growing family as well so he's uh uh just a great great kid i, I can't even call him a kid anymore but just a, a great man
0: uh, Scott, last night there was some news here in St. Louis. The Blues, uh, last year was their inaugural uh, Hall of Fame class uh, for the St. Louis Blues. And this year, one of the nominees that is going in is Keith Kachuk. I don't know what your experience is with Keith, either on or off the ice, but I know you guys were playing around the same time. I would imagine there were a few battles between the two of you. Uh, do you have a Keith Kachuk story? And if not, what, what was it like to go up against Keith Kachuk in the early 2000s?
4: Yeah, it, it was crazy, those guys. That, that team, St. Louis, you guys were tough. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Dougie Waite was there, prongs on the back end. And, yeah, it just seemed, uh, you know, Nashville, we were a young team, uh, just being a few years in, in the NHL. And so we weren't, uh, you know, as good as they are now nowadays. But it, it was always a tough, tough sled against those guys. And, and Walt, it seemed like he always got – it was always point night against us uh, when we went into uh, to St. Louis there. So it's uh, a well-earned uh uh thing to put on the, the end of his career uh, for Keith Kachuk. And, and uh, yeah, pretty amazing stuff.
0: Scott, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. We will hopefully talk with you again soon. And hopefully, it's under better circumstances for the Blues. Hopefully, they get this thing I figured know, out I, and they get things back on I track. Know, we, get,
4: we, ac- we actually have uh, Braden Chen coming on NHL Network this afternoon here. So uh, uh, if, you, if you got a, a down uh, 20 minutes, check out that interview. We'll have some fun with him. I love to hear it.
0: All right, Scott, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today.
4: Yeah, yeah. Take care, guys. Yeah, you.
0: you got it. That's Scott Hartnell, former NHL forward, now with the NHL Network. Uh, played 15 years in the NHL, had a long and sustained career uh, in Nashville, Philadelphia, short stint in Columbus as well. Appreciate him hopping on with us for sure. I thought one thing that he said there that was really interesting was kind of towards the beginning of the interview. He said, "Hey, it takes typically a couple of weeks for you to really get comfortable within a new system." And we've said all along, around November 1st, I think, is when you can really start to judge this team. Like, last night was ugly. There's really no way to put the lipstick on the pig. It it was an ugly game last night. The Blues will say that. They said it afterwards. That can't happen. I thought that maybe the most damning quote about it actually came from the Coyotes goalie who said afterwards, quote, I didn't have to do much tonight other than kill that penalty at the end of the second period. Other than that, there really wasn't much that I had to do. My job was pretty easy. When the other team's goalie is coming out and saying, hey, it was easy to go up against your offense, that is a damning proposition for you. That being said, it's one game. It's one game, and over the course of the season, hopefully it is one that we completely forget. By November 1st, over the next four or five, that's when we're really going to start to have a better idea of what this team is going to be.
3: Yeah, I 100% agree with you, and I thought it was interesting that he said it takes a couple weeks because, you know, from the outside looking in, we go, okay, they had a training camp, they had the preseason, but you're not necessarily playing with the, all the regulars. You're in the lineup with maybe three other lines that are guys that are going to be in the minor leagues. That is interesting, and it is, like, to your point, this is the time where we said this, going into November, you're playing a lot of these teams that are kind of in that middle ground, and you're going to be able to kind of see where you rank among them. Arizona belonged in that category, but so did Seattle, and you beat Seattle in a shootout 2-1. to one. You're going to find out a lot over the next handful of games between Pittsburgh and then that tough road trip that they got coming up where they swing out west. By the end of that, you would hope that they've got all the kinks that are worked out in this new system and you have a good idea of what they're going to be this year.
0: Blues back in action tomorrow night against the Penguins. It's Blues versus Penguins tomorrow starting at 6 o'clock will be your pregame coverage. Alex and Joe have that for you, again, right here on your home of the Blues 101 ESPN tomorrow at 6 puck drop tomorrow at seven coming up next we're going to get to our weekend look ahead in the nfl what is the game of the week that you're going to be watching what is the upset of the week that you're going to be picking we'll get to that coming up next as we wrap things up here on bk and ferrario we're right back to the bk and
1: ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn
0: Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters, specifically with the NFL Weekend Look Ahead. We do this each and every Friday going into the weekend. What should you be watching for? That's what we're going to try to answer for you right now. All right, T-Bone, let's start out with this. What's the matchup you're going to be most looking forward to watching on Sunday? You can sit in front of your television. You get one choice. You're not watching the Red Zone. You're not watching anything else. You're not going multiple screens. You got one choice for your game on Sunday. What are you watching?
3: I think the number one choice for me, I'm going to go with my Rams in this one. I want to know what Kenny Pickett looks like against that Rams defense. I know that team has been terrible offensively. I want to see it. I want to see what Pittsburgh looks like. This should be a game in which I think Pittsburgh, I know you're looking at me funny, Pittsburgh can beat the Rams. It's like it can the fourth actually best happen. game of the weekend. I know it is, but I, I think it's intriguing. I, I think it's going to be a better game than you're expecting. Chiefs I like Rams. Chargers
0: is better. No, Lions-Ravens no. is better. Dolphins-Eagles is hey, way man, better. I'm
3: trying to go against the grain in this one, okay? I know you're going to take the easy choice of those three. Yeah,
0: Sunday Night Football, man. 720, we finally get a good island game. Man, this is the one. Dolphins-Eagles is very clearly the correct answer here, in my opinion. These are two of the Super Bowl contenders in the NFL this year. There's like five of them, I think, so far this season. Dolphins and Eagles both belong in that category. I think the Dolphins are the better football team right now, just flat out. I I would say as of today, I think they're better. I would also add this. I'm not sure the Dolphins are a good matchup for the Eagles because the Eagles do not really care about their linebacker play. They're like, yeah, just throw two guys out there. They'll be fine. We'll figure this thing out. we got a great defensive line. We get uphill. It's going to be great. Here's the problem. The Dolphins, all they care about is who your linebackers are. They're going to make them wrong on every single play based on all the motions that they do, the counter stuff that they do. They've basically run the triple option this year offensively, and then they've got some RPOs that are off of that. I don't know that that's going to go particularly well for the Eagles' defense. The question is, can the Eagles' offense keep up? It's an awesome matchup. It is going to be so much fun to watch. Dolphins, Eagles, that's the one that I'm going to be watching on Sunday. The upset pick of the week, T-Bone. There is not a ton of options. We have a specific way that we have to go about this. This is not just a, oh, I think that... The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to lose to the Falcons. Uh-uh, doesn't qualify, not a three-point line. Got to be at least a three-point underdog. Who's the upset pick you're going with?
3: I, I think, I feel like I pick them a lot, and it's mostly because they're competitive, and though they're 1-5, somewhat fun to watch, I could totally see Arizona beating Seattle. Seattle's given off just bad vibes of a team that I, and maybe it's because I thought they were going to win the freaking West this year. They're clearly not doing that, but... Seattle's just giving off these weird vibes. And if Gino doesn't play well, I could see where Josh Dobbs keeps Arizona in this game. It's going to be a little tough for the running back. Room's a little banged up. No, James Conner definitely hurts them. I can see where Arizona keeps this thing close. can can pull off an upset in Seattle.
0: So, let me start out with this.
3: I guess you don't like that pick either,
0: huh? No, I actually don't mind it. Uh, the Lions are a three-point underdog on the road at the Ravens. I think the Lions are going to win that football game. Now, if that counts, cool. I'll go with that one. I would also add this. The Giants are a a two-and-a-half-point home underdog. Now, that does not qualify for what we typically do, but that means that Vegas views them as like eight-and-a-half points worse than the Washington Commanders if this game was played in Washington this weekend. That's a pretty sizable underdog at home. I think the Giants can absolutely win that game against the Washington Commanders. Sam Howell is always capable of throwing a pick six and getting sacked seven times in a game, and then he just completely implodes. My actual pick for the week... If I was to go with one that is a longer than three-point line, again, it is slim pickings. Chargers over the Chiefs, man. Chargers always save their best defensive game plan for when they play against the Kansas City Chiefs. Out of the last nine times these teams have played, seven of them have been decided by one score. The Chiefs typically come out on top, and I would expect that to continue to be the case on Sunday. But this Chiefs offense has not been looking particularly good against the bad opponents on their schedule. The Chargers are more than capable. I think that the Chargers can win this game. I'm not picking it, but if there's got to be an upset this week that's more than three points in terms of the spread, I think the Chargers are probably the most likely Is one. Is it
3: weird I trust the Arizona co- coach more than I trust Daly. Oh, that's fair. Because like, that's the biggest thing for me. Like I can see where it happens, but I know for a fact he's going to find a way to do something stupid yeah. that's going to cost them the game.
0: Who's the team with the most to gain going into this weekend, T-Bone? They get a win, and you come in on Monday morning, you're like, hot damn. I didn't know they were capable of that. Or hot damn, they went for being good to a Super Bowl contender. Who's that team for you? So I
3: I don't want to go with the Sunday night football game because I think we could throw sure. the Eagles into that conversation. I, I think it is the Ravens. I, I know they're at home and they are the three-point favorite in that game. We've been talking about them a lot recently. And they just don't – they're not giving off the vibe of – I thought this offense would look better. You bring in Todd Munkin, you bring in Zay Flowers, you got o, OBJ that's coming. I was like, whoa, ho, Baltimore and they just haven't done anything offensively. The offense just looks kind of blah. So I think if they're going to win, they're going to have to win by scoring points against Detroit, and that would mean that we feel better about their offense. And then they're 5-2, and two, and they're probably the favorite to win the AFC North at that point, I would say.
0: It's crazy to say the Rams are the team with the most to gain going into this weekend because if they're able to look good offensively against the Steelers, I think it's fair to say at this point you just have a good offense. Cooper Cup being back is huge for them. Puka Nakua, his target share has gone down over the last couple of weeks since Cup's return, but he's still a really good football player. I have no idea what they're going to do with their running game this weekend.
3: I'll tell you, they're not going to (laughs) run.
0: Defense should have a lot of success against a bad offense. I think this is one of those games where the Rams could start to prove you a little something that, hey, we're not just a plucky underdog team. This is a team that should be taken seriously as a legitimate playoff threat going into this year. Not Super Bowl threat, but a playoff threat nonetheless. I would have the Rams in this category, the other team that I would say, and it's kind of similar to that. I never really knew what to make of the Browns this year. I'm still not sure they're a particularly good football team. But it sounds like Deshaun Watson has a pretty decent chance to be able to play this weekend. You're going on the road at Indianapolis. That defense looked amazing last week against San Francisco. Can you do the same against Gardner Minshew? Do you look every bit as good this week as you did last week? If you do, okay. I'm starting to take you seriously as a, a legitimate playoff threat in the AFC.
3: See, I feel like you only learn more about the Browns if this game is close, because they should be able to beat the Colts. They really should. I mean, you look at that Indianapolis team. You got Gardner Minshew at quarterback. Look, don't get me wrong. He's a capable backup, but you should win this full game. This feel. This feels. I want to see them
0: win by ten or fifteen points. Yeah,
3: I think that's. And I feel like that should be the expectation. The is, line is three. So Vegas I, is
0: telling you they I, think this is going to be close.
3: And I wonder how much of that is dictated on the fact that they don't know what the quarterback situation is. Totally
0: fair. Because I think if, if
3: Watson was playing, I wonder if it's like six and a half. It feels like about where it would be, but that, that's my biggest thing with Cleveland.
0: He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Bradford Bruns did a fantastic job for us today filling in in the studio. He's got a long shift today. He's going to be up with a fast lane as well from 2 to 6. By the way, the guys are coming up here in just a little bit. They've got Keith Kachuk, the newest Blues Hall of Famer. He's going to join them coming up at 2.15. If you missed anything from our show today, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. We'll talk to you guys on Monday at 11am. The Fast Lane is coming up next. You've been listening to the BK and
1: Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.